So the irredeemable shag, Michael <laughs> Bailey. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Michael Bailey or Tom Panarese. These are your three options. Mm. They're all members of the Red Hood game, and you happen to be Batman. So which one are you going to punch? Which one are you going to save? And which one are you going to let fall into a vat of Ace Chemicals? Oh, that's such a tough decision. <laughs> but if I, I have to let Shag fall into a vat of Ace Chemicals. <laughs> okay. If only because that would then make him the Joker. And that just seems very appropriate somehow. <laughs> Uh, so then, oh, this one's difficult. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, I'd probably save Michael because Rachel would never forgive me if I didn't. Okay. Which, which by process of elimination means I have to punch Tom. Sorry, Tom. Okay. It's nothing personal, <laughs> but if you're going to run around with a criminal gang, kind of get what you deserve, my friend. Sorry. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute... Something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. And this is Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 123 for August MMXVI. Backworld Oracle is brought to you by Xenozoic Xenophiles. Xenophiles, a fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. 
We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. Backworld Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Batgirl the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Help TBU keep the lights on. Please donate to help Dustin with rising server fees. Your support means your favorite shows will continue airing. Go to thebatmanuniverse.net to learn more and donate today. Well, this month I have a very special guest, and I knew of him. I think we've known of each other because we have several mutual friends. Michael Bailey, of course, is at the center. We were just talking about that. It's like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon or what have you. (laughs) Um, And I was always intrigued because he podcasts with his son, and I thought, what a really pleasant idea. But I had really first heard him him speak on – Tom Panarese's pop culture affidavit on the cult. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed listening to what he had to say. So I thought, hey, I need to have him on. So welcome from Hey Kids Comics, Andy Leyland. Hello. <laughs> it really is like six degrees. I guess we can make up a new flow chart and call it six degrees of Michael Bailey. Yeah, well, Michael's connected to everybody, isn't he? He is, so. yeah. <laughs> so we're never more than one degree of separation away from Michael Bailey, I don't think. Right. Anyway, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as I talk with you, of course, Pennywise the Clown is is staring back at me. So I'm sure after I hang up, I'm going to have some daymares because I've been talking with Pennywise all the time. Sorry about that. That is okay. That's okay. As long as you don't say, you know, there are balloons down here, George, we'll be okay. <laughs> we all float down here, Georgie. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, first of all, I want to get your history with Batman in general and, you know, how you got into Batman comics. Batman was on constant rerun because I am very old <laughs> in, the, in the 1970s. Um, so, I was first exposed to the glorified magnificence of Adam West thanks to afternoon repeats on the ITV network, which quickly led to me. I was always a reader, even as a little kid. I blitzed through like Mr. Men books and Edith Blyton's Famous Five, and then I was on to other stuff quite early on. And uh, my granddad was a very big supporter of reading, so if I was reading something, he would encourage it. And for Christmas of 1978, which was uh, when I saw Superman the movie, for Christmas, my grandparents bought me the British Batman Superman, Spider-Man, and Hulk annuals, 1979. Are you familiar with the British annuals? I am not familiar with them. Uh, the British annuals come out at Christmas time every year. They were hardback, what we would now call graphic novel collections. And they would come out every year with a regular as clockwork. And Superman and Batman were always like standards. They, they came out most Christmases. Uh, and the Batman volume that year had the Batman origin in it from 1940, the one where he finally captures Joe Chill. Mm-hmm. 
that was the origin that opened that annual and that was pretty much me hooked at that point it's all the fault so that annual i still have it because it it's falling to pieces the pages are, are all separated from the spine <laughs> but it's actually got written in it to andrew merry christmas 1978 love nan and granddad so it's not oh, going anywhere right and and very quickly i discovered the little american reprints which is what we call them the little color ones when i was trying to explain to market stalls uh, but the next purchase i remember was batman pocketbook number two now the pocketbooks were published by Egmont Publishing, who must have licensed from DC. These were 100 pages in full colour, and Batman Pocketbook number two was all of the Marshall Rogers, Steve Englehart stuff, Laughing Fish, Mallet Penguin, mm. all of that gubbins mm-hmm. in one small little pocketbook, which I still have and got Steve Englehart to sign for me just this past weekend. Oh, wow. Can you actually fit it in your pocket? You can fit it in, like, the back of your jeans. Okay. It goes in that kind of pocket. But they're not little flimsy things. Like, the Marvel ones were flimsy 15p, easily disposable black and white things. These were quite sturdy card. They were very similar to your Blue Ribbon Digest, only slightly bigger. Only okay. slightly. When did you start collecting Batman on the regular? The American editions, the first one, I think... It's, I cannot remember the number of it. It's around 300-ish, in between 300 and 314, I'm going to say. And the cover is Batman on skis. Oh, wow. And, and I think it's either the abominable snowman <laughs> issue. Okay. Or, and I always get these two mixed up, The one, it, there's a four-part story around there as well where he fights Raz al Ghul. So it's either one of those two was my first issue of Batman. And then you just fell in love with him. Mm. What's not to love? Absolutely. You know, he is, he is the character. I think there's a huge amount of suspension of disbelief with Batman because he is a human being. But there's just nothing not to love about him. He's got that. He's got the James Bond swagger. He's got gadgets. He's got the car. He's got the cave. He's got the looks. He's got the patter. He's just cool. <laughs> So is there a time period that you love beyond all others? Yes. I okay. mean, if, if we if we accept, obviously, that Marshall Rogers and Neil Adams are in a, a separate category, mm-hmm. the, the work that they did is, is off on its own somewhere. Mine is probably the Jerry Conway, Don Newton, Alfredo Alcala okay. stuff from, from that same period. That's around the 300s to 350, isn't it? The original Killer Croc issues and the original mm-hmm. appearance of Jason Todd of Dick Grayson handing over the mantle of the bat because Dick Grayson's one of my favourite characters as well. Okay. And I, I just generally prefer that early 80s. It was a very friendly handshake. You're Robin now. Take it and make it your own. Bye. I'm off back to the Titans. <laughs> Rather than, you know, the angst we fell out and had an argument stuff of the 2000s. Right. So we're in the 90s right now on this show, and I know mm. that it's a divisive time because some people absolutely love it, think that there's great storytelling and all of the crossovers and everything, and then other people think that's too extreme. <laughs> so uh, what are your thoughts on Batman in the 90s? I love Batman in the 90s. Okay. I don't think you can go any wrong from, you know, Nightfall, I love mm-hmm. I think it's rushed when it gets to the end, but the actual Nightfall storyline's great. I love all of Chick, Chick, Chick Ducks. Oh. <laughs> I, 
I don't know who Chick Duxon is. <laughs> I love all of Chuck Dixon's work. Uh-huh. That, that Nightwing, that stuff he did with Scott McDaniel is brilliant. I love all of his Robin stuff, what I've read. I'm still working on collecting all of that. I love all of the Batman detective stuff that he did. Doug Mensch was doing good stuff as well. Alan Grant on Shadow of the Bat. No Man's Land is still the best comic book crossover ever. It's I one of those you. everything comes together perfectly in that crossover. I was just about to ask you which your favorite crossover is, so I think you just answered that. Yeah, No Man's Land's just genius. I think I, no wonder Denny O'Neill retired after that because it was like, <laughs> how can I top this? Absolutely, yeah, I totally. I think that's maybe the first Batman crossover that I had read, and mm. it was so engaging. And there are so many storylines going on; you don't think it could possibly weave together as well as it actually as it actually does. No, it's remarkably well. It's so cohesive considering it's so many titles, right. so many creators. It's You look at that now and you still think this is how it should be done. And the book by Greg Rook is very good as well. Mm-hmm. I've heard, but I have not read the novelization. It's recommended. It's, it's, okay. You just tear through it. It's a really good read. I'll have to do it. So, of course, we're on the Barbara Gordon podcast. And I must know, what is your history with her, specifically with Eckerl? Batgirl was a backup strip in Detective Comics right. when I was, was reading those uh, early issues. The, the ones that correspond with a Batman 300-ish, I think. So was Detective in the early 500s then, roughly? Mm-hmm. I think so. I think that's where they were up to. So Barbara Gordon was the senator, Barbara Gordon. Right, yep. So to me, she's always more contemporary to Bruce Wayne than to Dick Grayson. They've kind of, as they've aged Dick, they've kind of de-aged Barbara. Which I don't have a problem with. I have no problem with Dick and Barbara being in a relationship. I think it's really lovely, especially when Chuck Dixon handled it so well and other writers have as well. But to me, she is a little bit older than that. She's mm-hmm. more, she kind of looks at Dick as a bit, you know, maybe if he was a bit older. Mm-hmm. But that's that. my Barbara Gordon's that one, the one who's slightly older and is a senator rather than the librarian. Because for some unknown reason, the third season, I don't ever remember seeing that of the 60s TV show as a kid. So I don't remember seeing Yvonne Craig as Batgirl as a child. We only ever got, you know, the two parters. Mm-hmm. I don't remember seeing the third season at all. That's disappointing. Mm. Now that we they're on DVD, would you? Do you think you'll try to seek them oh, out? Yeah. The the entire show got a rerun in 1988 when I was in. I was still in high school, mm-hmm. and ITV's breakfast show in the morning went on strike. The technicians had a strike, so there was oh, wow. no cameraman. Mm-hmm. So to fill the air time, they just reran Batman. Okay. And that was the first time I saw Barbara Gordon oh, okay. on Batman. That's the first time I saw Yvonne Craig as Batgirl. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, she was always, I think it's sort of a post-crisis thing that they started to de-age her and bring her closer to Dick Grayson's age level or number and then of course now she's much younger but in the beginning you know there was that flirtation but it was clearly an adult and you know this younger adult and i remember in batman family there she kisses him to shut him up and and then people people rode in and they were super frustrated because you know you've got this older woman and this uh younger guy and clearly that's inappropriate um but you know they're my one of my uh favorite couple if not my favorite couple so do you think that's something to do with with the year one thing as well where frank miller clearly (laughs) de-aged gordon james gordon was when I was reading them in the 80s, Gordon was a contemporary of Bruce's dad. Mm-hmm. And in year one, he's not much older than Bruce. Yeah. 
I, I I think that story had more impact than we realize as comic fans with everything that went, you know, with James Jr. And, and all that stuff. And perhaps that is one of the reasons why they, they wanted him to be less of an Aunt May elderly character and one that can clearly, yeah, be a contemporary of, of Batman and mm. be on his level maybe. Mm. I just thought that was an interesting side effect of year one that it kind of gets ignored that year one establishes that Balfred was there from the beginning, which he mm-hmm. never was when I was reading them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the side effect of de-aging Commissioner Garden is that Barbara gets de-aged as well. Right. And I mean, it all works. I mean, there's an entire generation of comic fans that yourself included for whom that's the norm. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's fine. These things have to change and grow and be cyclical or you don't pick up new readers. Right. Yeah. And then if they aged with us, you know, they'd be... They'd be dead at some point, and then there'd be new comic <laughs> characters, and it'd be super strange. Do you have a preference? Do you like Barbara Gordon more as Batgirl or Oracle? Because, you know, No Man's Land, of course, she was she was Oracle. She's Oracle now. Uh, do you have a preference between the two? I think I prefer her as Batgirl. Okay. But that's, that's childhood nostalgia. Mm-hmm. She was Batgirl when I was growing up, and I was never a massive fan of what happened to her in The Killing Joke. But I do respect that there are an awful lot of people for whom the Barbara Gordon is Oracle. And she was great as Oracle. Mm -hmm. She was a brilliant character as Oracle. And it it is a much needed example of disability in comics and being treated as an equal. She was very important to the Bat family of titles in the 1990s. The story we're going to discuss, there's an awful lot of that book that just doesn't happen without Oracle. Right. Very true. Are you reading any of the modern comics now? Oh, God, too many. Okay. (laughs) A DC Rebirth has across the board been a massive surprise. I mean, nobody more than me is shot by this Stella because I've been – New 52 just did not float my boat at Mm -hmm. all. And I was basically down to reading Batman because Snyder and Capullo have been knocking that out of the park. Absolutely. And Justice League, which kind of stands on its own, didn't Mm -hmm. really interact too much with anything else. And it was just Jeff Johns doing, you know – high octane action movies every month which is fine but rebirth just batman number one was one of the single most fun comics i've read in years have you read that one yet oh yes yes i have where, where he, he basically does the superman returns plane sequence but with does. batman instead of superman and it's just awesome all the way through it ridiculous as hell <laughs> but nevertheless awesome he was ready to die for those people, though. Until, yeah, and yeah, which Gotham I thought was brilliant. Point. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to save this airline, but I may die in the process. And mm-hmm. if that's the way it is, then that's the way it is. But it was just such a good issue. Are you also reading Detective with that oddball team led by Yes, Kate Kane? loving yeah. Detective comics at the minute. Yeah. Absolutely loving the, the Batwoman-led team. Mm-hmm. Absolutely brilliant. That's a throwback to the 90s, clearly. Yeah, yeah. Or even early, because I, I feel like it's also sort of the Bronze Age, um, and you know, as it increased and, and went towards the modern, where you know, Detective was really a team up book, or at least several stories. You know, yeah. you'd have Jason Bard with Man Bat, and that you know, and and Barbara would work with people as well. So it's great to see this very strange team, but it somehow works. And then with Batwoman at the helm is is mm. pretty fun. Yeah, she's great, and Clayface is just hysterical in it. Right? Yeah. If you'd have told me Clayface was going to be a member of the Bat family and he'll be brilliant, I would not have believed you. Mm-hmm. Are there any other books that you're getting that you're excited about? Oh, Superman uh, action comics especially is really good. Um, I was quite impressed with Justice League Rebirth, although I've not read the first one yet. 
Uh, I read Nightwing. I quite liked Hal Jordan and the Green Lanterns. The other Green Lantern book, not as much, but largely because I didn't know who Jessica and Simon were. So I'm willing to give that one more of a go when it's been traded so I can read it and it, learn who those two people are mm-hmm. more as we go into it. But I've I've not been disappointed with any of them. Yeah, so I think. I think they've, they've all been really good. Absolutely. Hellblazer yeah. as well. John Constantine Hellblazer, that was good. Oh, well. okay. Yeah. Yeah, going in, I was a little skeptical because I didn't really know what this rebirth meant. And I, I'm with you on, you know, the New 52 wasn't the best, but also I didn't want you know, my five years time or however long it's been with New 52 to have been wasted. So I wasn't sure how they were going to connect the pre-Flashpoint timeline with with this one. And to some extent, some books really are able to bridge the gap. You can tell that the past is not forgotten and they're pushing forward. And other ones are just sort of continue. like Batgirl is just continuing on from uh, her Burnside run, which was at the end of the New 52. So, mm. yeah. yeah, and Flash has been good as well. I read The Flash. Yeah. And is that it's Wally now? Uh, I've only read the first issue with the Rebirth one, but it's still Barry in that issue. But okay. Barry's pulled Wally out of the time stream, right? Yes. So Wally now there are now two Wally Wests. But this is something that I'm very interested in. What are they going to do in Superman? Because there's mm-hmm. there's clearly going to be two Lois Lanes, right? <laughs> Bit of a mind trip, I'm. Yeah. Mm, so it's going to be interesting to see how they work that out. Now the two Wally Wests are two completely different characters mm-hmm. who just happen to share the same name. So that's not as as intriguing because they can get along quite happily. They can mm-hmm. peacefully coexist with no problems. But when you've got two Lois Lanes, just one that's slightly older than another one, how are they going to explain that? So that's going to be interesting to see how they pull out of that. And I think that's one of the things that's been great about Rebirth. It's all been, how are they going to get out of this? How are they going to pull that off? Because Action Comics, on the face of it, is just another boring slugfest with Doomsday. But it's everything that's going around that slugfest with Doomsday that's making the book interesting. Mm -hmm. That this is now a Superman who's got a son, and Lex Luthor's not quite the evil genius that he knows, because he's from the free (laughs) plat. I keep doing Spoonerisms on your show. (laughs) The pre-Flashpoint as opposed to free Flashpoint origin yeah. uh, continuity. So all that's that's what's making that boot fascinating for me, not the doomsday stuff. Sounds good. Well, are you ready to get into what we have planned for this episode? Absolutely. I read all <laughs> this this morning over a coffee. Oh, okay. Wow, just one coffee it took you. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised. It, it, was, it was a big bucket. It was was a big uh, Costa bucket of coffee, but it it still got me through. So we are going to be covering Legacy, Batman Legacy, uh, which was roughly from August to October 1996. And just a note for people who are completists, I am skipping. I'm going out of order slightly. There was a Robin issue that I was thinking about just breezing over, but I actually really liked the story. It has Maxi Zeus in it, so I think I'm just going to push it and do the two-parter uh, next episode. So just to to let you guys know about that. So Batman Legacy, uh, for people who don't know, is a sequel to Contagion, so keep that in mind, and really a wrap-up for Nightfall as well if you think about it. Mm. And um, are you reading from the trade paperback or are you reading from single issues? I've got the Batman Legacy trade because the the only single issue I had of this is Detective Comics 700. Oh, wow. 
The, which is a good one. And a yeah, it's a great too. one. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about your trade because uh, Tom and I actually talked about this uh, last episode when we did Contagion, and uh, you know it's it's ninety dollars on eBay. That's probably the the least you can get. So what does it include? Does it go outside of Legacy a little bit uh, and and do issues on either side before or after? Well, first of all, let's shout out the mighty Michael Bailey again because he oh. gave me this. Oh, what a lovely man. Yeah, he sent it me for uh, a birthday or for Christmas or something. Uh, and when you told me how much this was worth, I was like, really? And Mike just gave me this? <laughs> okay. Oh, I very much appreciated, Michael. Um, it's very choppy at the beginning. I have no ideas, idea what um, issues it includes. It starts with like a text piece Star Wars type scroll with clips from what looks like the Catwoman book. Okay. Where they introduce the great wheel, the wheel of plagues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then it goes into featuring pages from individual books. So you've got a page from Catwoman where she gets locked up. Yep. And then it goes to Armand Kroll dying. And then it clearly goes to Robin because the art there is Mike Waringo by the looks of it. And then there's a Huntress page that just seems really out of place. And then we've got a couple of pages where they tell Tim that he's not cured. Yeah. And then the art's really disjointed throughout this opening, which does seem to come from lots of different places. But then it seems to settle down into being an issue of detective. And then it goes into Prelude Legacy by Doug Mensch, Jim Apara and Bill Senkovitz. Mm -hmm. Now, if we have a look at the back, the, the covers are all like thumbnails rather than separating each chapter. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't look like they've actually put the covers in the order that they are in the comic. So it includes Catwoman 33, 34 and 35. Then Shadow the Bat, that looks like 33, but they're a bit small. Batman 533, Detective Comics 700. Then Catwoman 36, Shadow the Bat 54, Robin 32. Batman 534, Detective 701, Robin 33, and then the epilogue to Legacy from Detective Comics 702. Okay. But it, it does look like there's a bit of chopping and changing at the beginning of it to try and make bring you up to speed. Mm -hmm. The trade also has an introduction by Chuck Dixon. Oh, okay. Where he basically says this was pretty much his idea at one of those Batman summits. Oh, and the rest, okay. the rest of the team jumped on board this being, all right, yeah, this sounds like a good idea. Oh, okay. And I'm reading from the single issues and the majority of the single, I actually had uh, the prequel, which I didn't realize was a prequel at the time, but I got the, the Bane trade paperback that came out several years ago. And it not only had, I think it's just called Batman Bane. And then the other one, which is, which is his origin story and sets up, you know, him going to Gotham City. But it also mm. had Bane of the Demon, which, you know, was a little out of con When I read it, I thought, this is interesting. You know, he's meeting Roz. Or do you say Roz or Raish? We should get this on the table right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm from the Roz school. Okay, so I'll go with Roz to, to match yours. Um, and, it, you know, he meets up with him. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I don't know where this leads, though, because, you know, it ends with... They're in the desert, and then you see sort of the shadow of Batman, but I had no idea until this point where I realized it leads into Legacy. But everything else, uh, my story starts with Shadow of the Bat, and it's hard because that's, you know, it says part one, so it's got, mm. you know, its little banner across there. But when you get into Catwoman, 
randomly being inside of a jail cell, you wonder what's going on. So I'm glad that your trade collects 33, 34, 35, because I had to go back and get those to figure out how Catwoman got in that situation. Mm. But yeah, so, you know, I, I wish I could have had the, the trade. They've been, DC's been republishing and putting these trades out. Contagion was a new trade. They put out a new Cataclysm. But sadly, Legacy is still not on the table for whatever reason. Mm, seems a bit odd, that. Especially seeing as they've now got five No Man's Land plus two roads to No Man's Lands. Right, yeah. So it seems a bit odd that they'd skip out the middle bit. Absolutely, yeah. And you and I have something in common because Michael Bailey was kind enough and actually gave me his trades of No Man's Land. And that's how I actually first read them. So this guy, it is really six degrees or two degrees, I don't know, of Michael Bailey. And it just shows how generous he is. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let me just talk about uh, Bane of the Demon. Bane of the Demon is, of course, following Bane, and he's basically on a trip to find out who his father is, because if you remember his origin story, he was born in the prison at, at Santa Prisca. So this actually leads him to find Ra's al Ghul, who could potentially be his father. It's a little ambiguous, but there is one page where Roz sees like a paper that shows his... I don't know. His I don't know if it's a birth certificate. It's some sort of paper, and he starts laughing, which is something that I don't ever think I see Ra's al Ghul doing. So you kind of wonder, is he actually his father? But he, he teams up with Roz a little bit, uh, but Roz is looking for the Ebola strain or the, the, the wheel that we'll soon find out about. And Bane is both helping and harming the search, and he's also... Um, having, you know, trysts or just one with Talia and becomes quite smitten with. So this is basically what happens in this book. So the big things to learn from this is that Roz did not unleash the Ebola strain on Gotham, which is something that previously in Contagion, you wonder who the man behind the curtain is because it was clear that it wasn't the Order of St. Dumas. Like there was something bigger. And so you wonder, is it Roz? But he, it was actually stolen from him and the Order did this and it was an accident. So it wasn't him. Uh, he's looking for the Wheel of Plagues, which is something Eritreus discovered and can basically configure the structure of microorganisms, viruses, and plagues. And, and I'm going to go into what that is later. And then Bane becomes the new Ubu and the heir to the demon, and he's supposed to marry Talia. And, of course, there is that ambiguity as to whether he is uh, Roz's son, which is a little sketchy because that would make him a half-brother to Talia. So, but, I mean, the Egyptians did it, so I guess it's okay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you were saying that, because Bane of the Demon isn't in this. Right. But when you were saying that, I was going, wait a minute, doesn't, doesn't Raz actually want Bane to marry Talia? Yeah. So, like I said, it's ambiguous, but he's looking at this paper, and he just laughs. And it's clearly something that has to do with his father. There, were, it, it's When I was reading Bane of the Demon again, it really was reminiscent of Jason Todd when he's looking for his mother, and he has three different choices. And, you know, he's I remember uh, Shiva was one, and you had the, the nurse was a, the other, and I think it was like an Israeli agent or something like that. And mm -hmm. so it reminds me of that because there were three options for his father, and then it led him to, you know, someone named the Immortal was an option. Of course, you're like, oh, no, it's Ra's al Ghul. But it's, it's very, no one says it is absolutely, but it potentially, I mean, it's a good chance, it seems. 
Okay. So for I just want to do the credits for for everything, and then when I do my recap, I'll do it uh, per book. And uh, thank you to Wikipedia for helping me out, because otherwise it'd be a very labor-intensive, I think, thing to <laughs> recap the whole story. <laughs> uh, kudos to Tom Panneries for what he does. So the writers for um, all of them, you know, or just the individual issues, Chuck Dixon, Doug Manch, and Alan Grant. Pencilers, you have Graham Nolan, Jim Aparo, Staz Johnson, Dave Taylor, Jim Ballant, and Mike Waringo. Inkers, Scott Hanna, Stan Walk, Bill Sten... Oh, Stenkowicz. Uh, Rob- Stinkevich. Oh, Stinkevich. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here with me. That, that's, that's Bill Stinkevich of New Mutants and Moot Knight, or oh. he was when I was growing up. Okay. See, it, was, it was very odd seeing him here doing the inking on Jim Aparo, but yeah. we'll probably get to that later. Rob Lay, Ray McCarthy, Bob Smith, and letters John Costanza, Tim Harkins, Todd Klein, Bill Oakley, Albert Day Guzman. And colors, Gloria Vasquez, Adrian Roy, Pamela Rambo, Lee Lowridge, Buzz Setzer, and Greg Wright. And here is the recap. So first of all, these first three issues are not included under the Legacy banner, but give context to Catwoman's story in Legacy. In Catwoman 33, she travels to Religia to steal back a microchip before it can be copied and pirated. She gets the chip easily, but she's then attacked and abducted by a group led by Hellhound. In 34, the Collector has uncovered an ancient journal describing an underground wheel which was discovered by Eritreus. This is the very same one that we're going to be hunting in this story. It is heavily booby-trapped, and Catwoman is to be the front line going in. Brother Umberto, a former member of the Order of St. Dumas, who has translated much of the journal by Eritreus, uh, accompanies her. He and Catwoman enter the labyrinth as Hellhound's men are attacked. And finally, in Catwoman 35, Brother Umberto and Selena make it through the traps and to the wheel. Then Hellhound appears, and all three of them are attacked by a large unknown man who appears to be, or is, Ubu. And then Catwoman later wakes up in a cell, which is where we see her. Now let's actually get into the legacy story. So first, in Shadow of the Bat, number 53, an oracle appears here. Bruce tells Tim about the new mutation of the clench, which fights against the antidote that was administered and kills the victim anyway. He calls Azriel for more info, and this is what Azriel has to say. He says, Legend has it that 2,000 years ago, in the reign of Ptolemy Twelfth, the sage Eritreus discovered a long-forgotten city buried in the sands of the Sudanese wastes. On his death, Eritreus left a cryptic journal recording the secrets of his discovery, a record that was savagely censored by St. Augustine himself. Since the Middle Ages, at least a three-way war has raged across the centuries for control of this journal. The Order of St. Dumas versus the might of the Vatican and a shadowy figure known only as the Immortal. So that's the setup there. Batman, Nightwing, and Robin prepare to leave for the Sudan. DA Voter reports to Penguin on the city's affairs. Huntress continues taking down looters, raiding the homes of clench victims. And then Robin informs her that she'll be in charge of Gotham City while they are gone. Batman brings Gordon up to speed on the situation. In Batman 533, Batman, Nightwing, and Robin land in the desert and find the entrance point, Asriel described. After taking out the guards, Batman finds what appears to be a map and guides them through the labyrinth. At the end of the tunnel, they are met by three shadows. 
This leads to the oversized Detective Comics number 700. Ra's al Ghul, Talia, and Ubu, who is Ra's servant, stand above Batman, Nightwing, and Robin. Ra's orders them killed without revealing his plans in a villain monologue, as is the usual. Running for cover, Nightwing takes a bullet. The ancient wheel beneath the desert is a recipe for plagues. Roz again plans to cleanse the world of 90% of humanity. His technicians finally digitally render the wheel. Roz orders the entire underground facility, including the wheel destroyed, and Ubu floods the caves. Batman is able to get himself and Robin to safety as Nightwing faces off against Roz. His two partners arrive soon after, but Roz escapes with Talia and Ubu, who removes his mask to reveal himself as Bane. Catwoman 36. Catwoman breaks free from her cell and frees Umberto and Hellhound, who vows only a temporary truce. Outside the compound, she defeats Hellhound, temporary indeed, and ties him up. Catwoman and Umberto set out toward civilization. Batman gets word from Oracle of the three destinations that Roz has taken. Nightwing and Robin leave for Paris, Batman for Edinburgh, and they then plan to convene in Gotham. Robin 32. Dick and Tim split up in Paris to cover more ground. Robin meets up with Henry Descartes and tells him what is going on before meeting back up with Nightwing. They find the spot where the virus will be unleashed. Nightwing goes into the sewers below the Louvre, while Robin goes into the actual museum. Nightwing takes out the plague disperses below, while Robin and Descartes take care of the demon's agents inside. Tim and Dick then head back to Gotham City. Shadow of the Bat, number 54. Batman stops the dispersion in Edinburgh while helping out some locals with their own mission. Robin informs him they were successful in Paris, but Oracle says Calcutta would be the next target. Batman heads to his new destination. Batman number 534, Oracle appears here. Oracle contacts Batman in Calcutta and directs him to meet with a contact. While waiting, he meets a young boy who offers to help Batman in his admirable enterprise. Batman tells him to keep his distance because there could be danger. The contact then arrives and turns out to be Lady Shiva. The duo is attacked by Ra's al Ghul's men shortly after, and a brief fight breaks out. After the scuffle, Batman takes a ring from one of the assailants, which he gives to a merchant, and tells him to feed the boy well. The pair locate Ra's al Ghul's agents at the Festival of Durga, attempting to release the virus into the water supply. Batman and Lady Shiva chase down the men responsible. During the fight, one of the culprits pulls out a gun, and having followed Batman, the boy he met earlier jumps on the back of the man with the gun, ruining his aim. The boy is knocked to the ground and shot. Batman disables the shooter and asks him where the virus is. Before killing himself with the poison capsule hidden in a tooth, the man tells Batman that the virus is in a soluble wax container hidden in a statue that was already thrown into the river. Batman jumps from the bridge and manages to reach the container and get back to the surface while it is still intact. He then finds the boy still alive and tells Lady Shiva that because the boy almost died but killed no one, he chose the path of a hero. Detective Comics 701, Oracle Pierce. Back in Gotham City, Batman finds the demon's agents at the site of an upcoming grand opening of a casino. Bane is there and attacks him. Batman sabotages the building and it explodes. His rage helps him defeat Bane, but the current from the river below the casino drags Bane away before Batman can take him in. Nightwing, Robin, and Huntress pursue Ra's al Ghul by boat. Robin number 33, Oracle appears. Robin, Nightwing, and Huntress make it aboard Ra's al Ghul's yacht as Batman continues to search for Bane. Robin finds the computers with the plague information and uplinks it to Oracle. Nightwing and Huntress put up a fight against the demon's agents, but he and Talia capture them. 
Robin is attacked, leading to an explosion. He gets Huntress and Nightwing off the ship before it explodes. Oracle gets the entire program in time. Montoya and Bullock discover dozens of mobsters that watch ashore from Bluehaven, thus leading into Nightwing's debut in Nightwing number one. Detective Comics number 702. Wayne Pharmaceuticals begins distributing the cure. The demons' remaining Gotham agents attack police headquarters with a suicide bombing. Commissioner Gordon and former Commissioner Essen Gordon, along with the rest of the force, drive them away. The estranged couple make up and head home. And then Batman Bane. After suffering defeat from Batman, Bane hijacks a mobile nuclear power plant intending to irradiate Gotham City into a wasteland. With the combined effort of Batman, Robin, Nightwing, and the plant's first mate, Bane's plan is thwarted. The final story of Batman Legacy. So Bane appears again because, you know, he floated away on his driftwood. Yeah, he floats away like Frankenstein, doesn't he? Right. So, <laughs> And then he's he's done for real this time. But it is sort of like, a, man, he's back again. You know, he's defeated at least twice by the hands of Batman. Okay, so I want to start out big and then we're going to get smaller. So how do you think this story legacy fits in Batman crossover history? Do you think it's successful? Do you think it stands up well against other ones like Nightfall and No Man's Land and even right before it with Contagion? Uh, I think it's certainly a, a very enjoyable read. I think I do think this kind of gets lost in between mm-hmm. the No Man's Land and Nightfall. Right. Because it doesn't seem to be as well remembered as those stories. Mm-hmm. And as we've just discussed, this one isn't currently available in trade paperback. Right. And I did wonder when I was reading it this morning, ultimately, it's enjoyable. And it feels very much like that 90s thing that we had in movies where movies like Outbreak and and other stuff like that suddenly made viruses popular for five minutes. Mm -hmm. But when I got to the end of this, I was like, well, who was this story about? If we assume that any story is about somebody's personal development and change... Oh, so as Nightfall is clearly a Bruce Wayne story because mm-hmm. it's him coming to terms with the fact that he's not unbreakable. Who's this about? Nobody is any different at the end of this than they are at the beginning of it. So whilst it's a fun, action-packed romp with lots of fun moments in it and even a little bit of history lesson as we get into the Morocco stuff and it's done in such a way that it isn't, you know, it's not beating you over the head with the history lesson. I can't help but wonder maybe that's why it's not as well remembered or it's as lost. It's not about our core group of people. This isn't a Batman story where Batman learns something that he will take with him. It's very definitely a continuation on from the story before and will lead into No Man's Land. So I don't know. Do you think this really stands on its own? I think it could potentially stand by itself, but you would you would lose threads like you would wonder why Bane and Batman you know there's such a grudge there or what's the significance between these two going up against each other and then you know with the Ebola strain you don't really have that connection I think it's overshadowed by its big brothers if you know Mm. if you think of it that way because I think Contagion was such a big story and I think it had more emotional beats and then you had, you know, Bruce Wayne, Batman struggling to come to terms with the fact that he can't fight a virus and the Batman family 
really becoming a family and, and going off and, and searching for the cure. And then Nightfall, which was also a, a big story as well. You know, it's really a trilogy. So this is sort of in the shadow of those two. And I think you could almost just end Contagion and that be it. Yeah, no, see, I, I think I'm in. I think I'm in 100% agreement with you. It's not that this isn't enjoyable, right? It just it feels inconsequential compared to the other ones. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no big moment in this that really any of the bat team are going to refer back to in the future, mm-hmm. other than Commissioner Gordon and um, Sarah Essen getting right. back together, mm-hmm. which is heartbreaking when you know what's happening or will happen in No yeah. Man's Land. Yep, very true. Yeah, as I was reading this, uh, I did I did enjoy it, but I didn't feel like it was as well done as Contagion, and it really was for me a Contagion two. Mm. And it's one of those things where you come across a story, and, and and I think this is something that you and Tom discussed on on the cult show that you know you have a story that you really love. Do you love it enough to potentially make a sequel, or do you love it enough to just say this was great, but don't touch it? And mm. maybe you know maybe Contagion was uh, this is great. Let's just end it right here, and maybe Roz is doing something else. But unfortunately, they went on and, and made another Contagion because it just. Felt like they're doing the same thing they're trying to find a cure it's just a different it's a different cure than they were originally and then Roz and Bane get in the way so I, I was a little disappointed with this and I, I don't know if it holds up as well as other crossovers like we're saying with Nightfall and and No Man's Land and I think what 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 plays into that feeling of deja vu is that the stakes are pretty much the same in this one I mm-hmm. mean you do try to heighten them Mm-hmm. But it's still Gotham has the potential to catch this virus and be completely wiped out. Right. And Tim is very much the one in the firing line because mm-hmm. he got the clench in yep. the previous storyline. And uh, they established very early on that if you've already had it, you're going to be more susceptible this time around. Mm-hmm. So it did feel like repetition of the stakes as well. And they never really upped it in such a way that I, I completely bought into it. Other than... Raz, who I am inordinately fond of as a villain, Mm -hmm. because the best Raz stories have you see what he's doing and understand why he's doing it. And actually, you're kind of almost on the guy's side when he's explaining, look at the ravaged mess we've made of the world. Look at what we're doing to each other. Look at the state that we've got the planet in at the minute. You kind of squint a bit. And you're like, you know, Raz isn't wrong. He's just very wrong in how he's going about doing it. Mm-hmm. But he himself is that best kind of villain in the, you know, slightly askew, he could be the hero. And I didn't really think they got Raz's point of view across in this one. This isn't one of the better Raz stories where he's trying to repopulate the planet in his own vision, which mm-hmm. is what makes him the bad guy. But the intrinsic idea behind what he's doing, trying to take a step back, get rid of all the things that we've done wrong, remove pollution, remove all of the stuff that we're messing up, that's not really conveyed terribly well in this story. This just feels like another Raz wants to wipe out the earth and get Talia with somebody to, to give him progeny. <laughs> yeah. And they've done that many, many times in Raw stories. Mm -hmm. There always needs to be that hook 
with a Ra's story that when you're reading it, you as the reader can actually understand why he's doing this mm-hmm. and sort of almost relate to why he's doing it while still acknowledging that, yeah, Batman's got to stop him. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, it is a tightrope to walk with Ra's stories, but the very best ones get that. And that's why he's one of my favorite villains. There are occasions that you look at him and go, he's not wrong. He's wrong in how he's going about it, but his, his, his underlying philosophy is not incorrect. Yeah, as I was reading it, I, I started to wonder, is he becoming a trope, you know, here? Mm. Because he does sort of have the same constant gimmick of, of, you know, a desire to cleanse the earth. Do you think that it's it's like same old, same old with him? Because I don't know how many stories I've read of him. I, I know I have another trade that just is like the tales of Ra's al Ghul. And then, of course, this. But does he do anything else? other than try to get rid of 90% of the, the population. No, that's pretty much Razi shit. Okay. And the best stories, like I say, are the ones where he's doing it for a specific reason. Like there will have been a major catastrophe like Exxon Valdez or something like that. And, and Raz is right, said, enough is enough. Mm-hmm. I've had enough of this. The best ones are still the earlier ones by Denny and Neil and Neil Adams, where Raz clearly ties into that 70s idea of pollution which is still going now, but it was a big thing in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Um, But you've also got the emotional connection that Raz only thinks that Batman is good enough for Talia. So, and you do have that really interesting connection between the two of them that in another life, maybe they could have got it together. So there's always those interesting little character beats as well. But no, for the most part, unless it's a really spectacular Raz story, he's the Craven, the hunter of the Batman rogues gallery. Gotcha. In that there's nothing specifically wrong with him, mm-hmm. but he's only got two or three stories. You know, Craven shows up, he fights Spider-Man, he's, he's hunted everything that walks, crawls or swims on this planet <laughs> at one time or another, right. and Spider-Man's the one that eludes him. But he can't ever actually win. So the only stories you can tell with Craven are him keep completely losing or have him win and then commit suicide because he's achieved his life goal, which was mm-hmm. how James DeMattis ended Craven's story. And you've got the same problem with Raz in that Raz can't actually ever achieve his goal. Now, I know this is a problem with every one of the villains, but when Raz is such a big James Bond-type villain, his, his schemes are always global in what he's trying to achieve. And therefore that makes Batman very much a Bond archetype. He's not just saving Gotham here. He's saving the world. And this elevates Batman very much into the superhero stratosphere, which is another problem that I do occasionally have with Batman fans, that Batman's not a superhero. He clearly is. This is very much a globe-trotting James Bond-type adventure Mm -hmm. where Batman has to save the world. But, I don't feel that the stakes in this particular story were ever conveyed as well as in other Raz stories. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right in when you say this is a by-the-numbers Raz story. And even though you've only read a couple of them, you've already nailed it. Maybe he's a fan of Rachel Carson and her uh, Silent Spring, and and that's where he's gotten his ideas from. That's where he's coming from, from, yeah. What do you think about Delane revealing him until Detective 700? Do you think that was a good play? Because there were, I think, two issues before that. Yeah, there's a couple of issues before that. Right, yeah. Yes, I do. Because, and I love the way they've paced that in the trade. Mm -hmm. Because the way that they've done it in the trade paperback is you've got them all saying, it can't be, it mustn't be, it is, it's him. And then they've got the splash page for the next issue. Mm -hmm. So you have to turn the page 
before you see that it's Raz. So they managed to make that cliffhanger work even in trade paperback, mm-hmm. which I thought was a remarkable layout. The only thing wrong with it in trade is it goes from Jim Aparo to Bill Senkovich to Graham Nolan, who were two completely different kinds of artists. Yeah, But you, you needed a big villain for Detective 700. And right. they kind of took the Joker off the stage at this point, hadn't they? They were they were waiting to give him a big reveal in No Man's Land, mm-hmm. so the, so it wasn't going to be somebody like the Joker, and arguably Raz is up there, if only because, like I say, his 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 plans are always global; they aren't just Gotham. But yeah, we've seen Raz in the desert before, and we've seen Raz doing all of this before, and the only one that really, the only moment in this that made me go, oh was revealing that Ubu was Bane because I hadn't read Bane of the Demon, which right. isn't in the trade. Yep. That was that was a nice surprise. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, right, okay, fair enough. Which makes me wonder what the initial idea was behind Bane of the Demon because having read that, these reveals are not a surprise. Right. But had I not read that, then I would have been surprised that it was Roz. And then the Ubu being Bane would have been a real surprise because I would have had no idea. So I wonder if these writers more prefer that people don't read that prelude, Bane of the Demon, and just jump in here. Or is it better, you know, to get more information as to why Bane is, is hanging around Roz? I, I just wonder what the, the creator intentions were surrounding that story. Because hmm. certainly, having only read this legacy trade, that was mm-hmm. a big that was a big turning point, right? Because you also don't know who it is that Raz has promised Talia to. Mm-hmm. That's a nice reveal as well. Yep. Because prior to this, Raz was always about the detective is the one for you. He's the only man I could see being worthy of you and worthy of me. And to actually uh, to that he's found somebody else. And through reading this alone, you're like, well, who's he talking about then? Who can it possibly be? Mm -hmm. And when it's revealed to be Bane, that's a good twist. And I think ultimately that's where this one scores better. The twists are effective. I didn't see that one coming, and I've read a lot of these things. So you do get to a point where superhero fiction is very repetitive, let's be honest. As much as we love it, there are certain, like the word you used earlier was tropes, there are certain tropes that you get used to reading mm-hmm. in superhero comics. So the fact that this story caught me off guard twice is a testament to it. So mm-hmm. it's not as predictable as, as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And I, there's a part of me, Stella, that just loves Batman as global superhero. Mm-hmm. You know, I do, I do like him as Gotham's guardian, but to me, he's not like Spider-Man. You take Spider-Man out of New York and he doesn't really work that well. Right. You put Spider-Man on the moon and he's just completely out of his element and I normally just check out. But Batman as global superhero, Batman as James Bond is just such a brilliant... That was something Denny and Neil brought to it mm-hmm. and something that other people have jumped on. So to answer your question, I think this worked better without reading Bane of the Demon, or it certainly did for me, because they were two big story twists that I didn't see coming. Right. Yeah, let's talk about this globe trotting because it's something, you know, with Contagion, it was mostly in Gotham. Batman stayed in Gotham and then he sent his different people out uh, like Tim and Catwoman, you know, to search for the cure and they went to different places, but mainly in the continental U.S. But here you have them going overseas to several different areas and you said you enjoy this. Does it help or hurt, though, that they also get into these side missions? And I think the the one that really comes to mind is when Batman's in Ireland 
and he helps out Edinburgh. Edinburgh, yeah, and he helps out the family that's trying to get the stone back. Mm. Yeah, so, they've got yeah. that mystical stone, don't they, that they believe is part of their heritage, has yep. been keeping the, the farm safe. Mm-hmm. And Batman's probably of the opinion that's a lot of old hooey, but he helps them, which yeah. I love. I, I know I genuinely love that. I love it when Batman does small-scale stuff. But I, I loved Tim in Paris mm-hmm. because there's a wonderfully funny beat in one of Tim's issues where he's he's performing acrobatics on on the streets of Paris. And he's like, oh, I'm fine. Nobody's going to recognize me here. And you turn the page and he runs into somebody that he knows. Right. Which is one of the funniest moments in the book where he meets uh, some guy. And I love that the, the captions bring you up to speed on this in, mm-hmm. with minimum effort. Modern comics don't do this too much anymore. But Tim's narration tells you who he is to teach him martial arts and Tim's just not got any time for this at the minute. So he just takes him down with one punch and then kicks him in the face. Yeah. I was expecting more of a comeback from that, but we never see that guy again. So I liked that. There's something a little bit uncomfortable about Batman talking about terrorism in Paris at the minute. Mm. Yeah. But obviously that that wasn't on the creators' minds when they wrote this, so right. that's just something a more modern development. Yeah. But yeah, Tim in Paris is brilliant, mm-hmm. and him having to take lead on it because Nightwing's got busted ribs yep. is is really good. Some of the art by Staz Johnson though is really good as well. Tim looks like a fifteen year old kid; he doesn't look like an adult, which is always something that people get wrong. Mm-hmm. But I'm a big fan of the Huntress in Gotham as well. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting because having read Contagion, Batman's very distrustful of her Mm. and she was allowed to work with him during Contagion. Just, you know, no lethal hits or anything. But here she's allowed to protect Gotham while all the boys are away. Yeah, which is that lovely scene where Batman will actually go and ask her himself. So he sends Robin to do it. Uh, Right. Yeah. And you've got that great bit that, all right, I'll do it. But when you come back, he comes and thanks me personally. Mm -hmm. I love that bit. I thought that was absolutely wonderful. Do you trust Huntress at this point? Uh, I do, because essentially she's got the same goal that Batman has, but she's just a bit rougher around the edges. Mm -hmm. And he needs to bring her into his inner circle and kind of teach her that killing isn't what he does. Mm Mm-hmm. So, but she's a great character. I really liked the Huntress in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. Tom and I sort of got into a debate about, um, or not a debate, but a discussion about why Batman doesn't trust her, and is it just because she's a woman, or is it something else? And and I think in, in this case, I think it is certainly because her methods are a little um, outside of Batman's book. Well, that's interesting, that because I honestly I never got that he didn't trust her because she was a woman. I'd never even thought of that. Uh, my reading of it was that he didn't trust her because he didn't like her methods and she wasn't part of his inner sanctum. Mm-hmm. And he didn't control her. He'd not taught her. She wasn't of him. And therefore, he was just naturally distrustful of that. I didn't think it was because she was a woman specifically, because he has nothing but faith in Catwoman when he has to trust her. Right. Even though he knows that she's prominent, probably less trustworthy than the Huntress. That's true. Because if Catwoman sees something that is for her, she'll be out for herself. Mm -hmm. But he has a lot of faith in Catwoman to do the right thing when he knows that there's bigger stakes on the... Let me rephrase that. When he knows there's there's higher stakes going on, he will trust Catwoman. So my my reading of the Huntress thing was it wasn't that she was a woman that he didn't trust. He just didn't like the methods that she went about employing. But it's interesting that you brought that up because I've never thought about that. 
We just got into a discussion of, you know, is Batman sexist? Um, Do you think he is? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I, I think it's like uh, I gave a non-answer that, you know, I think it, it depends. <laughs> well, I think it depends on the era. I think it depends on the writers because, you know, in the Silver Age, and this is just coming from someone who – Loves Barbara Gordon. You know, in the Silver Age, she was not allowed to be in the boys' club. So it was very much, you know, he and and Robin and the He-Man woman haters. Um, And and I think maybe – I think my answer was that I think women do need to work a little harder to earn his trust and his respect. Um, And so I think, you know, with with Dick and and Jason and Tim and and Damien, well, that's blood. But, you know, they – prove themselves but it, it's not as hard as stephanie who you know made one mistake and then was kicked out <laughs> of being a robin and barbara yeah, who he, really had was, to work up to it yeah he was clearly a, a bit wrong with stephanie mm-hmm. that's, that's why i asked you the questions about what you thought about her yeah because certainly with the huntress i never got that but i can certainly see that being a, a legitimate argument with stephanie yeah but i think he does make did you change your profile picture yes i changed it for you <laughs> <laughs> you were so kind. All of a sudden, I'm looking at a man with his hand, and it That's looks me. like a Han Solo gun. With my Han Solo blaster. Oh, it is a Han Solo blaster. Yeah, there we go. That's um, me trying to do the Force Awakens posters. Oh, that works. Look at the mood lighting. I see it, the blue and everything. <laughs> I, I put a lot of effort into that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think overall he's not sexist, but I do think that women need to maybe work a little harder to earn his, you know, his trust and respect, which I don't know if that necessarily makes you sexist or just like he's trying to protect you. I'm not sure. But, mm. uh, but in all of that, I, I do understand why he doesn't trust Huntress. And I don't think also, I, I, I he doesn't probably want to eat his words and going to her face to face and saying, we need your help. So that's probably why he sends him as an agent. Mm. Uh, but it is pretty comical. But then you get a, a really nice story beat at the end of that because he, you know, Tim drops whatever act he has as Robin and calls her Helena and says, I just want to let you know that it's been a pleasure working with you. And she, of course, thinks that, you know, it's it's about her side. Like if something happens to her in Gotham, he wants her to let. But it was really him because he, you know, still has the clench inside of him. And so he's saying that if he died, you know, it's been a pleasure working with her, which I thought was really nice. Mm. Well, Chuck Dixon and this this era of Batman writing were exceptionally good at doing these high octane, big, splashy adventures with lots of action. But they never skimped on characterization. Right? Does that that lovely issue of Nightwing, I think it was, where it's just Nightwing and and Tim as Robin just jumping on trains mm-hmm. blindfold. And it's yes, it's an action set piece all the way through, but it's character. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. And yeah. D- Dixon was really good at stuff like that. Yeah. Let's talk about the treatment of Tim here. And if you recall from Contagion, I don't know how long ago it's been since you've read that one. I read um, the trade for that before I read this. Oh, there we go. Well, I had problems with it a little bit because I felt like Batman had Tim kind of on a short leash It wasn't necessarily not trusting him, but I feel like he didn't have full faith in his abilities. Even when he sends them off, you know, he sends Asriel secretly to watch and take care of him. But here, as you were uh, describing before, you know, Tim and Dick go off, but Tim really has a mission, you know, on his own. 
I, I felt like it, w- it was a much better Batman gives him his due, basically, even though he's got the quench still inside of him. Mm. But but I thought overall that this is, you know, the the Robin Batman relationship that you want, that Batman has full faith in his Robin and he can they can separate and he can do what he needs to do to help with the mission. But how do you feel about since you and I didn't talk about Contagion, what do you think about the characterization of Tim in that story? And then what do you think about him in this one? I think Tim is probably my favorite Robin. Oh, okay. Um, Dick's one of my favorite characters, but when I mm-hmm. came into the comics, it was through Dick in the Teen Titans, and he's Robin for a, a vast chunk of that. But then he hands off, and in my head, he's he's graduated to be Nightwing. Tim's character was extremely well developed by Chuck Dixon in the mm-hmm. issues of Robin that I've read, and he's very consistently written throughout all of this. He's, I think it's it was interesting. In uh, in Contagion, that they made Tim have the clench because he's the second or third Robin by that point, isn't he? Jason Todd's dead, right? So he's the third Robin. So there was a very real idea that they could have killed him. Mm-hmm. It was unlikely because he's got his own book, but there was still that thing at the back of your head that well, they've killed a Robin before, so they could kill him this time. In this one, I I especially liked that Bruce wanted to leave him behind. And he actually makes a big deal about not taking him with them. Nightwing and I will handle it. And Tim's very, no, I'm the one with the disease. I've got a stake in this. I'm coming with you. And then it's pointed out to him that, okay, well, if he's with us and we do find a cure, he'll be the first to get it. So it makes sense to take him with us. But when he branches off on his own, what I love about Tim is he was always more than capable. And like I said, I love his Paris adventures in this. I mean, he does need rescuing once or twice. Right. But that's Robin's job, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Robin is there to be rescued on occasion. Um, and the scene where they're trapped in the water and it's the water pressure that saves them. Yeah. I thought that was a lovely scene where Batman just steadfastly refuses to give up because he's got to save Robin and then he's got to save the rest of the world. So Tim's brilliant throughout this entire book. I do especially love that scene in Paris where he hits that guy. I know. And it's funny because the guy's not even expecting it. They train together and I think that guy's recollection is that Tim is probably a wimp and and can't take him... You know, you can't take him seriously. And then all of a sudden he just lays him down, which is great. And he walks away. He doesn't even gloat, which I think is totally Tim because he wouldn't just stand there and gloat. But he has he's got bigger things on his mind. Absolutely. But I love as well. His clothes are red and green. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's very much. uh, I don't know if you've seen the TV show Smallville. Mm -hmm. Clark Kent before. Well, when he's on the farm and everything, he would always wear shades of red and blue because, of course, he'd be Superman. Uh, One thing that I thought was very interesting in Robin 32, near the very end, I think it's on page 21, Henry Ducard, he had just shot all of those agents. Oh, yeah. And the very last thing – well, Robin says – in response to where the the virus is that, you know, it's being taken care of by someone I can trust more than you. And then Henry Descartes says, what do the lives of a few vermin mean against the life of the human race? And this actually causes Tim to ponder because he's on the flight back and he wonders, can he be right? He can't get uh, Descartes' justifications out of his mind. What Mm. do you think about that scene, just that interaction between the two of them and the fact that what Descartes has to say sticks with Tim? 
Because it goes into the best Raz stories. Like I was saying earlier, when mm-hmm. you identify with what Raz is saying, right. that Dick's realizing that Batman's black and white worldview mm-hmm. isn't necessarily his worldview, and that Ducard may actually have a point here. He did kill these five guys, but in doing so, he saved Tim's life. So Tim's very much in a situation where he's realizing that the route that Batman has got him on may not necessarily be his path. Mm-hmm. And that's something that ran through most of Chuck Dixon's handling of Robin. Robin, Tim Drake, had no desire to take over to be Batman. And I think that's largely because Tim doesn't share Bruce's worldview. Bruce has a very narrow worldview, which a lot of people have discussed. Chuck Dixon did that brilliant Joker story where the Joker was sentenced to the electric chair and Batman wouldn't let it happen because he was sentenced to the electric chair for something he didn't do. And in Batman's quite rigid world, black and white worldview, that didn't fit. Tim's very much not like that. Mm -hmm. Tim very much realises there's more going on in the world than black and white. And in this particular instance, he's struggling a bit that Ducard has killed somebody to save his life. I I liked it. I like ambiguity in my superheroes. Mm -hmm. I always like this idea that this vigilante vigilante fiction actually does have real-world consequences. In a real world, obviously, that has people running around in capes and masks. (laughs) Right, yeah. So you you have to buy into that heightened reality to enjoy a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But as somebody who loves real world fantasy, which essentially is what this is, when you throw some moral ambiguity at somebody like Tim Drake, it's always going to be interesting reading. Do you think that Batman's so set in his ways that his ideology will never change? No, I don't think he will. I don't think Batman is one of those people that changes. I think he was very much set on his path when he was eight years old and his parents were killed. And that's the path that he's going to resolutely stay on. And I think he's very black and white in what he believes, even though he is a strong advocate of rehabilitation. So that Mm -hmm. shows that he does believe in second chances. But you do have to question how much he believes in second chances when the same guys just keep coming back to fight him. Right. Uh, But yeah, I I think Batman is very rigid, but I think that's part of his appeal, that he's not a fascist with it. He's he's one step away from the Punisher, but it's a pretty large step. Mm -hmm. Well, I I totally second everything you you said about Tim. I just found that very interesting. And that whole issue with him and and Ducard, there's obviously lots of tension between them. And I think Tim clearly does not want to be working with him. But just the fact that you know, something he says sticks with him. You kind of wonder, you know, where is Tim and in Batman's ideology, and how much does he agree with him? So, yeah. You will can imagine if this was being played by two actors, the guy playing Tim wouldn't look him in the eye. Yeah. That's how I imagine this scene playing out. You just wouldn't look at him. Yep. Because he doesn't like him, but he's having to work with him, and I think that would be that's how it would play. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about Talia and Bane as a couple. <laughs> <laughs> What That's do you, just wrong. Well, if we take out the fact that they're probably related by blood, um, half siblings, I guess. <laughs> but we can't take that out. Well, t- t- you could because you only read the trade. It's I That's can't. true. Yeah, that's very um, true. What that's, th- that's not in my head. <laughs> what do you think about them as a couple? And do you think that Bane is actually capable of love because he's very over the moon with her to a certain extent like he it seems like he really loves her and and do you think this is a legitimate characterization of him Uh, i think burns a 14 year old boy in in love with the first girl he's ever met okay if we accept that he was raised on santa prisca yep there were no women there 
No. So he's grown up in a very male-dominated society. I don't think he knows how to talk to women. I don't think he knows how to relate to women. Mm -hmm. And he's been introduced into this arranged marriage situation, essentially, by Raz. Talia is obviously a very attractive woman because that's how she's always been played. And I think that that's what he's in love with. I don't think he can relate to women at all because he's never grown up with them and he's never spoken to them. So I don't think he's in love with her. Okay. Just like the idea of a woman. Yeah, that's. I think that's very much it. I don't think he's capable of that. He's too obsessed with what he's doing as yeah. well. What did you think then? Yeah, did you, well, be- did you buy that? <laughs> did I buy that? Well, it was certainly written like that. I mean, especially in. I, I hope you look up Bane of the Demon because I, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. But you know, that's really when the, their love affair happens, and it's it's over very quickly. He like. So saves- what's what's Talia's take on it in Bane of the Demon? She uses him and loses him, really. You know, th- there's one night and then she's like done with him and she said, you know, get out of my room. And then a- as the story progresses, she becomes more and more sickened of him and just finds him like a disgusting creature. And her father's saying, well, you need to get over because he's going to be my heir, <laughs> you know, once he decides that. So it's very much the same thing here. And it's interesting because there are those moments where. Roz is telling her that clearly when he thought that Batman was dead that you know he wasn't the heir I thought he was and then if he reappears you see like a small smile on Talia so I think Mm -hmm. you you always know that I think Batman is is the one for her and maybe Bane was like the flavor of the of the moment and she just (laughs) wanted to taste and now she's done so for her (laughs) you know she's completely disgusted with him and I think that was written well throughout See, just reading Legacy, I I got that she just wasn't interested in it at all, Mm -hmm. was my reading of it. Yeah. So you would have no idea, yeah, that they had any sort of romantic tryst. As for him, I asked this of somebody recently, and and the person that I asked said that he didn't think – I mean, it's not something that Bane would lie about. Mm. And that's not really – I I didn't even think about that, like, lying. I just felt like with everything that had happened, is Bane capable of love – because, you know, nature versus nurture and losing his mother and, and growing up in, in that prison. And really the only friends he had, I think, which were those three men that I, I know one of them was like Falcon or Hawk and, and then the other two in Nightfall. I mean, if one of them died, he wouldn't blink. Like, you know, they're, they're with him, but it's not like they're tied together. So mm. I was just wondering if, if he is capable of this or... That's my only question. Like, it seems believable as you're reading. I'm like, okay, yeah, he loves her. But if you look at the whole character, is he capable of loving someone else? I don't think he is. I yeah. don't think that's that's what's in Bane's makeup. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a there's very much a, a flip coin thing between him and Batman. Is what they're playing with, right? But I never bought that with Bane as much as I buy it with, say, Harvey Dent, mm-hmm. in the sense that. Bane is a thug who got lucky. That's all Bane is to me. And I'm one of those people who's very much the opinion that although I liked his appearance in this and felt that it worked very well for this story, he was created for Nightfall. Mm -hmm. And maybe we shouldn't have ever seen him again after Nightfall. Mm -hmm. Because what can you do with him after that? 
he was created to be the person that broke Batman so they could tell that story and ultimately take it to its logical conclusion of having Batman be replaced to make him more 90s and gritty <laughs> and then ultimately have Dick Grayson take over right. and then show us all those different shades before Bruce came back. Mm-hmm. Once he served his purpose in the narrative, has he ever done anything interesting post-Nightfall? I don't think so. I don't. I mean, he's good in this. Yeah. But essentially, what's he here to do in this? He's just here to fight Batman. Well, we've seen that before. And he's never going to achieve what was the point of his creation in the first place because he achieved that in his first story. So you're kind of in this limbo with Bane in that he's a very physically impressive villain. Right. He is a villain that can challenge Batman on a duke-it-out, toe-to-toe boxing match level. But for me, Batman's a much more interesting character than that. For me, Batman is more interesting when he's using his intelligence and Mm -hmm. his brains and his compassion rather than just punching people. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's all he can do with Bane. He can't outthink Bane because Bane doesn't think. And he's not really got any kind of strategic wherewithal, even though in Nightfall he he plotted Batman's demise. But there's nothing really to him. He's not a master strategist. He's not going to be leaving him clues that he has to break like the Riddler there's not a lot left for him to do after he's been beaten in nightfall. And he doesn't really do anything in this to justify his continued existence in the rogues gallery. As far as I, you may, you may disagree. You may think that this was, you know, this is all Bane is here to do. And if that's all he's here to do, he does a good job of it. Giving Batman some decon punch, mm-hmm. but Batman's not Superman. Right. And giving Superman someone that he can punch through buildings is cathartic and, and interesting because there's something primal about seeing Batman, sorry, Superman just let loose with that amount of pure power. But that's not who Batman is. Batman, my Batman only fights with people when he has no choice mm-hmm. and then he takes them down as quickly as possible. He doesn't get into knockdown, drag out fights with people. It's one punch and they're down. I do think that there needed to be a time that they... There is a rematch between the two, though, because if you never brought Bane back, then you would always wonder what would happen if they met up again. And I think Batman needed to, like, reclaim some modicum of, like, self-respect and defeat him again. Uh, Do you agree with that statement? Yes, I I agree with that. But he beat him at the end of Night's End. That's true. Yeah. So they've done that. And so you're left here with a situation where whereby you're watching Batman beat up on Bane and wondering why Bane ever gave him any trouble. Mm -hmm. But is he off the venom in this? Uh, I don't see him. Yeah, I don't see him jacking up either. And I'm sure he has a line of dialogue saying he's off the drug. Mm -hmm. So then what even makes him think he can take Batman then? Because in Nightfall, he cheats. Mm -hmm. Bane doesn't win by fur means in Nightfall. He wears Batman down. Mm -hmm. And then he jacks himself up on on an increased dose of venom before he goes in and breaks his back. So he doesn't win him in a fur fight, Mm -hmm. which, you know, he thinks that he does because he's the villain, but he doesn't. (laughs) So in this particular instance, even though Bane is clearly strong and very muscular, he's no match for a master fighter like Batman. So is this a fitting end for him or do you think he would have waited or or put him Um, on the shelf? I don't know, to be honest with you, because actually having him in this story, which mm-hmm. shows how contradictory I am, I actually did quite like him in the right. story. Right, Azubu, yeah. 
Yeah, so that was quite a nice reveal. And yeah. having that tension with Talia, who clearly does love Batman, mm-hmm. or certainly has a physical attraction for him, while still appreciating that he's a very smart man as well. <laughs> yes. So that did add a certain something to the story, that it, if it hadn't had that, this would have just been a globe-trotting adventure with no real consequences. Yep. So I am, I'm kind of backing myself into a corner there. They've done what I don't like them doing, but they did it well. Mm-hmm. So I ended up enjoying it. So this is the nature of us as comic fans, though, isn't it? It is, yeah. (laughs) So now we're actually going to talk about Barbara Gordon, would you believe? Yay. And it's funny because a listener last episode said, you barely talked about her. But, you know, in terms of, like, percentage of the whole story, she doesn't really pop up that much. But when she does, it is significant. Mm. So she's actually in four particular issues here. And I'd say a couple, you know, sometimes you don't even see her. You just see the speech bubble and, you know, Oracle and and you can tell everything. But sometimes you do see her. And I think a couple of the more important story beats that she was in was, of course, setting Batman up with a contact in Calcutta who happens to be Lady Shiva. And Mm. then um, all the tech stuff with Robin and and downloading the program and and hopefully, well, the the plague information basically and setting up the the cure. So uh, what are your thoughts on Barbara Gordon? And I mean, could this story work without her? Uh, How significant is she in your mind in this particular story? I think she's very significant in this. I don't think this story could work without her. Mm-hmm. She is the one who's keeping all the members of the Bat family in contact with each other. Yep. Because, I mean, it seems odd now, but it is the era before cell phones. <laughs> Only just, but it is the... So it's Oracle who's keeping them in touch with each right. other and keeping them apprised of each other's situation, mm-hmm. which allows them to be able to go to the different corners of the globe and be able to do what they're doing. She is also, like you just said, she's very instrumental in helping Tim locate where the virus thing is and you do get that wonderful very tense scene at the end i mean people do say when you do computers you can't make tapping on keyboards suspenseful (laughs) but they do do an excellent doo-doo they do an excellent that's because i've got kids sorry they do an excellent job here of having robin have to defend the computers that are uploading the information to her from being destroyed by the four guys with guns that are after him so she has enough time to get all that information. And there's a lovely panel transition of um, the guy. It's on page 227 of the graphic novel, which probably doesn't help you at all. But it's the bit where the guy hits the power line with an axe, electrocutes, right. he falls right back. Mm-hmm. And then the next panel is Barbara throwing herself back in the chair in exactly the same pose that she's managed to achieve her goal. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was a brilliant scene transition. And she, she again, she is, she's the puppet master in a lot of ways. She is very important to the story, even though she's not actually in it a lot. Mm-hmm. But that's how important a character she became to the Bat family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Her hair changes. I don't know if you noticed that <laughs> at all. Well, Dick's does as well. Yeah. In the Robin issues, Dick's hair is much longer and Fabio-like than it is in the other issues. Yeah. 
I just have to comment on it because Professor Alan Middleton uh, and I did an issue. <laughs> oh, and it, like, it, it changes and it's, it is really weird because there's no standard yet. And the standard as I see it for Oracle is what we see in that, in that issue we're just talking about, which is Robin 33, uh, you know, a, um, not a bull cut, but like a bob basically is, mm. is it. But then, you know, earlier on you see her with like nice flowing locks. So they're sort of not there yet. And her wheelchair has handles on it and you know who in their right mind thinks that Barbara Gordon wants to be pushed in a wheelchair <laughs> so I feel like she probably has a wheelchair without any handles on it but you know those are just some some detail art details there but I totally agree with you that she very much just like Michael Bailey in the podcasting world is the the linchpin that that keeps everyone together she's the one that's sort of um, plotting out the missions I think she's you know very much like bat on the equal of batman if batman's the field leader i think she's the leader that's at home and coordinating everything and without that person you'd have a lot of trouble and she's there at key moments like with robin and i'm loving these interactions with robin because that issue that i said i'm going to skip and come back next month is all you know about her relationship with tim and i think it's great because tim is a computer whiz he's very intelligent i would say you know on the same level with barbara gordon and so it's nice that they have that relationship tech technology wise and then you know setting up a contact who you know probably not the best person maybe that's one of the reasons why Barbara didn't reveal who it was she said she didn't want to say over the air but I can only imagine what would have happened had she said it's Lady Shiva what Batman would have said but just being able to do that and and you know, at home in her clock tower is is great. And I think while she just appears sparsely, each time she appears, I think she's dealt with well and she has an impact. And I think it just proves how important Barbara Gordon is to the DC universe. And, you know, not an exaggeration, but I think the universe and able to connect all these people together. Mm, I think she's I think she's exceptional in this. Yeah. Like you say, every time she shows up, she gives them an important piece of information. Mm hmm. She isn't just here for the sake of being here. Every one of them. In fact, the I was going to say every one of them, but I'd actually argue of all of them, it's Nightwing that you don't really need in this story. Mm, okay. He, he goes along with them because originally it's Batman and Nightwing that are going to take on the mission. Right. And then Tim says, well, no, I'm coming because I've got a vested interest in this. Once Tim decides to go with him, I don't think you really need Nightwing. Mm -hmm. And I, I do wonder if that was the impetus behind them breaking his ribs. Yeah that he doesn't really have a significant role to play in the back half of the story. It is mostly Batman tracking down Raz and Robin and Oracle tracking down the computer system. Mm -hmm. Nightwing doesn't really do anything in the back half of it. In fact, in the Robin issue where they're in Paris, Tim actually says to him, you just need to rest those ribs. And there isn't actually an issue of Nightwing that's a part of this story, is there? There's not an issue of Nightwing in the trade. Right, no, because they set up. Because at the very end of the story, there's that moment where Montoya and Bullock, I guess it's in Robin 33, uh, Montoya mm. and Bullock discover all of those mobsters and they've washed ashore from Bloodhaven. And so <laughs> it like ties in because then it's like, check out, you know, what happens next, which is Nightwing number one. So it ties into it. But yeah, I, I wonder why Nightwing isn't given as much. I mean, he fights Ra's al Ghul, which was interesting mm. because you think if Batman, you know, struggles with Ra's, then what's it going to be like for Dick Grayson? Um, and Dick gets taken out. Yeah. Yeah. Dick very nearly gets killed, doesn't he? Yeah, that he does. 
Well, I don't think. I, I, do you really think Bruce trains with swords? Trains his Robins with swords? If we believe Daughter of the Demon from the early seventies, then yes. Okay. I did, I did like the little nod to that story as well. That's one of the most famous images of Batman with the sword with the top off. Right. It's from that story. Yes. And uh, we have that scene in this issue where both Nightwing and Batman take the tops off. Mm-hmm. So I thought that, that was a nice nod to Daughter of the Demon. Are there any particular uh, poignant moments for you in the story? Any like emotional beats that really got to you? The last issue in the trade paperback, mm-hmm. when they get back to Gotham, and they think that it's all over and they've done a good job. And then Bruce Wayne does his playboy act where he screws up in front of the cameras, which was yep. quite funny. But then they show him all the dead bodies. Oh, yeah. And he has that reaction where they do that comic book thing of the shady's eyes. And he just says, give them whatever they need. Mm-hmm. Whatever they need. And leaves. And it's it leads into a brilliant ending where Tim finds that kid in the alleyway whose parents have deserted him, which kind of harkens back to the issue in Calcutta where Bruce also found that child right. in an alleyway. Yep. So I thought that was a nice touch, that there was two kids in two alleyways. And Bruce managed to save the kid in Calcutta, and Tim fails. And there's that brilliant bit uh, where he gives the kid to the paramedic at the Gotham Hospital, and the paramedic actually tries to, to jay him up a bit by saying you did the best that you could. That's all any of us can do. And you've just got that lovely panel of just a completely white background and Robin with his head low saying, but I promised that I'd save him. Mm-hmm. And this entire issue is just the feels, which I think is what the kids are, <laughs> where um, you've got the the lovely moment of Sarah and Jim getting back together, mm-hmm. which is only tragic in hindsight which we've already mentioned. Right. But then you've got the scene where Bruce and Tim are both moaning about what they didn't do rather than what they did do. And as usual, Alfred's the voice of reason. Mm -hmm. And Alfred comes in and says, no, you did what you could. And everybody that is still alive is alive because of you. And you've just got that lovely bit there where, where they just go, wow, yeah. And that's it. And if I have a complaint... I think the trade paperback ending here is very abrupt. Mm. They've got back into Gotham and then the story just ends. But that goes into the serialized nature of comics at the time, doesn't right. it? I mean, everything now is written for the trade. So it would probably have a, a more, not a lengthier ending, but it would have an ending that felt like it slowed down and then stopped, as opposed to this that feels like it just stops. But I suppose I should be grateful that that issue of Detective Comics is included. Mm-hmm. Because you could argue a case that the story actually ends in the issue before. Right. But that would have really been unsatisfying. Yeah, I love this issue. And it's funny because, you know, all the action is done. So it very much is a, you know, let's wrap up everything and, and make it, you know, as tidy as can be. I think there's still some threads. You know, Bane has floated away. You don't know where he is. But what they do with it, it is so wonderful. And I think just uh, all the emotional beats happen to fall in in this uh tim is okay and so now he's he's going to help other people and um you know it's back to business as usual where some people you can save and some people you can't and i i absolutely one of those big uh moments i wrote down was when bruce sees all those dead bodies and you know batman or bruce wayne is not the person who's gonna you know tap himself on his back and and say you did a good job bruce (laughs) but Mm -hmm. uh but i think you know there was a modicum of like happiness that you know it's over they found this 
cure and and they they stopped Roz but then when he sees the toll you know it brings him down and I remember Lucius goes after him and and Bruce slams the door which seems I think very out of character in Lucius's eyes uh and it's you know just it it goes back to the fact that Batman is mortal he he can't do anything everything uh I think even Superman though couldn't have have saved all of these people either which is great and then yeah you're talking about the Sarah Essen and Jim Gordon marriage um just getting better and and these two have been on rocky terms really since the Nightfall trilogy because Jim was having issues with he knew there was a Batman that wasn't his Batman, and so there's some trust issues. And then he, you know, stepped down, and Sarah took his job, and there's resentment over that. It's all, all of this stuff. And they're having conversations, but it's difficult. And just at the end, you know, he protects Sarah and proves his love right there, and, and that's all that that really needed to, to be said. And, uh, yes, it is very sad to think ahead to, to no man's land. So uh, maybe it's good to just keep our eyes on the present and say that these two are, are back together, which is great. Mm. But, yeah, I, this was a, a great issue, I'd say. Yeah, it's a very nice downbeat ending to the story as well. Mm. It isn't a happy ever after ending, which, you know, have their place. And I, I think it works very well here. That it's not a happy ending. It's just an ending. Well, as we are starting to wrap this up now, if there was someone who wanted to learn more about Batman through whatever means, you know, single issues or crossovers, would this be a story that you would say you must read this in order to understand who Batman is or you must Mm. read this because this fits in well with his history? No. Okay. It's a great story. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. It's a very, like, a globe-trotting, action-packed adventure. I mm-hmm. don't think it's a seminal adventure mm-hmm. in the way that I do think No Man's Land is and various other. Nightfall definitely is. Prodigal, for getting Dick Grayson in the back costume, definitely is. And various other single issues that you could pick along the way. I don't think this is is up there with those. But it's certainly an enjoyable 90s romp and, you know, some, there's, something, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what I, I think the important thing that we need to stress. This isn't a negative, no, I wouldn't recommend it right. to new readers, but to established Batman fans who've never mm-hmm. read it, yes, because it is a fun romp. The The only problem with it is it's roused by the numbers. But taken, like I read it just as a single graphic novel adventure, it's fun. I didn't feel I'd wasted my time reading Mm -hmm. it and I didn't come away disappointed with it. I came away thinking that if I'd paid money to see this in the theater for a two hour movie, I would have come out satisfied and then gone for pizza. (laughs) and probably, probably never thought about it again, but I had a good time whilst it was happening. Mm -hmm. And I, I will agree with you. I think um, if you're looking for, you know, to read more about Batman, that this fits that but if you are a new reader that i wouldn't recommend it i don't think while i enjoyed it it is not worth the 90 dollars on ebay for you to find you can find the single issues much cheaper i know you could probably yeah the single issues for like 15 dollars altogether i would say uh depending on how much the your local comic shop is is 
making them. But like I said before, you know, it's really just a contagion too. So if you're looking for a more satisfying story, I would go with the contagion side. But if you're looking for something that really encapsulates Batman Nightfall or No Man's Land, just like Andy is saying here, um, it certainly fits the bill better. What would you give this out of 10 Ubus? <laughs> sit, Ubu, sit. <laughs> Uh, I would give this a solid seven ubus. <laughs> okay. Out of ten. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree with you and give it uh, seven ubus out of ten. As well. It's a good seven. It's a solid seven. Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you would like to say as we leave Legacy? Uh, no, thank you very much for, for having me on. I very much enjoyed that. Thank you. I, it it was, was a pleasure. Yeah, it was so much fun. Well, you won't be joining me for the second half. So can you tell listeners where they can find and support you? Um, uh, hey Kids Comics is me and my son, Michael. And that's intermittent rather than weekly anymore now that Michael's a university student and poor and destitute. Oh, dear. So we only get to record that when he comes home. Uh, that's on Hey Kid. That's on Hey Kid. That's on <laughs> Two True Freaks. It releases on Thursday whenever we release. The Palace of Glitter and Delights is also on Two True Freaks, which is me just talking about anything pop culture that comes my way. I've just wrapped up doing Lean Ditko's Spider-Man run. Um, Listen to the Prophets as a Deep Space Nine podcast and Keep Them Flying as a Firefly podcast, which I do with Paul Spataro and Bill Robinson, also on Two True Freaks. And Fantasticast is something I do with Steve Lacey, where we're looking at the Fantastic Four from the beginning. Wow. And we're currently in the early 70s. So we're rapidly approaching Luke Cage as a member of the FF, which oh, wow. excites me immeasurably because I love Luke Cage. I think Luke Cage is brilliant. Are you excited for the Netflix show that's coming out then? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I can't get enough. I love Luke Cage. That's amazing. I love his original 70s, you know, Superfly incarnation. Yeah. But I get why they've had to update him. But I just think he's such a brilliant character. This streetwise, no-nonsense came up slightly rough around the edges guy who's who's on the side of the angels but isn't above charging some money for it <laughs> yes I, I don't see anything wrong with that it's brilliant yeah. i'm a big iron fist fan so you and i are um very compatible here oh well. yes so when so netflix get iron fist as well we could have power man and iron fist which yeah. would just be awesome it will be great well, as a as a final thought, I've been there's sort of a conflict between Donovan Morgan Grant. I don't know if you know who this is. I and, know I am well aware of Don. I've okay. got a lot of time for Don. <laughs> and the <laughs> irredeemable Shag. And so I've been asking uh, each of my guests, are you uh, Team Shag or Team Donovan? Oh, Stella. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I can't do that. That's not fair. Okay. I love both of them. <laughs> um, oh, is this a gun to my head? Oh, you gun to your gun head. To, Choose one or gun? the other. Yeah. Uh, if, if it's too, you know, Tom, he didn't answer either. So if that's <laughs> what you got to do, then that's what you got to do. Oh, oh. They're giving away free T-shirts. One of them says, hashtag Team Shag. The other one says... <laughs> Hashtag Team Don. Which free t-shirt pile are you going to? Is this like Twilight? <laughs> kind of. Or Team uh, Angelina, Team uh, Jennifer Aniston. When Brad was, you know, going between the two. Oh, I'm Team Jennifer Aniston. Okay. So uh, whichever one of them is Team Jennifer Aniston, that'll be me. I have no idea which one that is. Well, that puts it back on them, doesn't it? And gets so. me off the hook. There you go. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was such a pleasure to finally talk with you and to talk this story. 
That was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now on to some listener emails. Mail time. Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. So first up, I just want to give two shout-outs. First of all, one to Damien Crawford, who is very kind enough to send me in a HeroClix character and it happened to be Oracle and actually I really like HeroClix and I don't have an Oracle one so now I do so thank you Damien very much and also a shout out to Clinton Robison who had his friend Rebecca Shear who's a cosplay guest at the Tulsa Comic Expo she videoed me a message when she was cosplaying as the pre-Flashpoint Batgirl I think I should be specific about that so thank you so much that was super fun to watch that My first and only email, and then I have some comments on the website, comes from Ian Miller. Dear Stella, not sure if you would want to feature this in BTO, but I just finished reading Batwoman's New 52 run because of Detective Comics, and I was wondering about your thoughts on it after Williams and Blackman left the title. I thought the first 24 issues were really well done, though flawed, though I thought the same about Rucka and Williams' first arc on the character before the New 52. But it immediately went drastically downhill after they left. I loved Mark and Draco's work on Manhunter, but his stuff for Birds of Prey and Batwoman is really substandard. Really interesting elements like Kate and therapy for PTSD, Maggie's custody battle, and Alice slash Beth's return were obscured by incredibly dumb villains and really terrible art. Well, Jeremy Hahn's issue was pretty good, but George Janti and Moritat really didn't fit at all on the title. Just wondering if you had thoughts, since you are such a big Kate and Maggie fan. Also, do you like Bet Kane? Actually, Ian, I stopped reading after Williams and Blackman left, whether it was, you know, solidarity with them or just, you know, you could tell it was going downhill at the end for them anyways, like they weren't as interested. I can't really recall back then, but I I didn't enjoy it, you know, towards the end. Of course, I was sad about Kate and Maggie not being allowed to get married. And well, there was no need for me necessarily to cover it on, on anything, so... I didn't read anymore, but I did really like, uh, I assume when you're saying about Detective Comics that you read her, her first run there, Elegy, which was just so great. And my first introduction to Kate was also in the weekly series, which was called 52, which is something I actually recommend you maybe checking out uh, if you have the time and if you have the dime, because I have no idea how much that stuff is now. Maybe you could get a good discount on it. Uh, she's not featured heavily, but you know she is, I think, one of the minor cast members in that particular story. And you get her relationship with Renee, which is really interesting. So I'm afraid I can't comment much on the Andreco work or anything, though it is interesting when you said that Alice and Beth returns. It sort of makes me interested to just read that particular story because obviously allergy was just wrought with emotions because of that whole thing as for bet kane you know i since she you know was technically the original bat dash girl and and i haven't really covered her anywhere <laughs> it's interesting that uh not many people ask me about this and it's funny uh i did actually cover it with tom Panneries. 
And the early stuff, you know, in the 60s, I think was, you know, as expected, sort of this, this Robin uh, girl crazy, or I guess boy crazy kind of girl. And then I read the Teen Titans little mini that she was in, and you feel bad for her because Dick Grayson's treating her really terribly for her trying to do the right thing. And then in the beginning of the Williams and Blackman run, you, I, I feel like there's so much legitimacy added to that character. And it's really sad because there's obviously this loving relationship between Batwoman and Bette, between Kate and Bette. But Kate, you know, doesn't want her involved. And then Bette goes off on her own. And then, of course, she gets seriously injured. So, yeah, I guess it's funny I said it adds some legitimacy, even though she's, you know, bedridden for a long time. But I think it shows just that she, you know, she's going to do what she's going to do and what she believes in. And she wasn't really going to take any guff from Kate and she was going to go off on her own but I don't know ever what happened to her because like I said I stopped so not too sure but I I think it'd be fun to bring her back into mainstream comics somehow you know it would have been great I think if if spoiler Stephanie Brown spoiler were non-existent right now I think that Bet would have been a great member on the the current detective comics team that Batwoman is leading but I mean, obviously, that is not going to happen. So I don't know when she could return, if she will ever return. Maybe she's kind of on the back seat now. But uh, I thought that she's, or I think that she's pretty cool as Flamebird for sure. Thank you, Ian. And now I've got some comments on the website. First, on episode 120, where my guest was Sue from. DC Women Kicking Ass. Uh, First of all, Donovan says, Sue was fantastic. She's got to come back on. Then Ian writes in. He says, my bad on the Stuart Fletcher mix-up. You're totally right. I agree. I don't love the way Nightwing tends to have too many casual relationships. But as you point out so well, the relationship between Dick and Helena was really developed from beginning to where it is now. They did sleep together in the Future's End one-shot, but that was alternate universe stuff. Oh, I realize what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm hoping for. I think I remember hearing that Dick and Babs have never actually dated in the new continuity, so Nightwing, Batgirl, Huntress, Triangle would be really interesting. And as a huge Helena fan, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they're doing with her backstory after the Grayson Annual Number 1. What are the plans for reviews on the modern side now that Rebirth has hit? That's interesting about the Dick and Babs having never dated. I haven't heard that. It's just interesting given the fact that they were given time together in in that last or in the Nightwing uh, rebirth issue. And so I guess that could be a partnership, but I kind of sense it as like something special. I mean, maybe that they didn't date. I guess I can see that. But I think there was probably some sort of romantic inkling on either side of them. Who knows? Uh, As for my plans, which you will find out shortly, I am not going to cover Gotham Academy anymore. It was sort of always tertiary anyways, and it didn't, you know, kind of, it was still in Gotham, right? And... There was some tie to like Robin and Batgirl sometimes popped up. But because I have, you know, how I started, right, with Batgirl and Birds of Prey, I'm going to keep with those two reviews. And then probably with Gotham Academy, maybe do like a short recap and then what I give it when it returns for season two. 
But that's uh, just what I'm doing with the modern stuff. So you can expect, I guess, a return to when I first started this podcast many moons ago. And finally, from Michael Ridge, Salway Stella, you are back into titles I did read when they came out, but those were years ago when my job involved travel. I couldn't always find a comic book store every week. My reading was intermittent for all titles. I'm eager to hear you take on the early Birds of Prey. Sue is a great guest. Fly on, Michael Ridge. And then we have one comment on episode 121, which Tom was on, and we did Contagion and Gravity Falls. And Ian writes in, really great podcast, Stella and Tom, though I was a bit sad there wasn't more Oracle commentary, but the Hunter's commentary made up for it. Birds of Prey, the Gil Simone run, made me an enormous Helena Bertinelli fan, and there actually were some serious looks at how her vigilante life intersected with her teaching. Greg Rucka actually had her fired during Huntress, Cry for Blood, and it was one of the things that was was really hard for the character when she joined Birds of Prey. It managed to get resolved, but even though we're still probably years, several years from reaching that point, I don't want to spoil it from Sella unless you've already read those issues. Contagion is one of the crossovers I haven't tracked down and read. I really enjoyed what I heard about it on this podcast. Well, let me say about the Oracle commentary, I am sorry. I think, you know, Donovan also commented that we talked about you know babs like two percent of the time but the thing is that you know as important i think as she is sometimes to the story with what she's lending the information that she's giving it's hard to talk about that you know when you have to also step back and and take on the whole story and i don't know if i necessarily want to be like the let us you know analyze the words that she's using and and her interactions and things like that and like get to the nitty-gritty if there's not stuff there to analyze so I just want to like an overall picture and I tried to hop on some of those bigger scenes like her and Catwoman and the significance of that and 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 things but you know as we go on and and as I do more crossovers I think she's going to pop up more and and there'll be more to say just like in Legacy I think we had more things to say about her this time but uh, I'm trying obviously trying not to skip over her since this is a show dedicated to her but sometimes it's going to happen if if she's not there it's hard to Talk about things that aren't there. As for, I don't think I've read Hunter's Cry for Blood, so I may have to look that up. It does sound really familiar, but I don't think I've read it. And then um, as for later Birds of Prey issues, I've skipped around and, and read other things uh, when I wasn't you know, fully collecting, but I don't remember specifically that storyline. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, Contagion, Ian, it's uh, it's been resolicited and it's and it's out. So unless you're looking for single issues or the original trade paperback, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to get because I just got the new... Uh, trade. So I recommend getting it if you were interested in the storyline and interested in reading it. Well, thank you to everyone who wrote in, whether it was email or on the actual episode post on the Batman universe. Well, when I come back, I'm going to review Batgirl and the Birds of Prey Rebirth number one and Batgirl number one. But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring Rise by Katy Perry. I won't just survive Oh, you will see me thrive Can write my story I'm beyond the archetype I won't just conform No matter how you shake my core 
I forgot a shout out to Martin Gray, who got a copy of Batgirl and the Birds of Prey Rebirth number one signed by the artist Claire Rowe and is sending it to me. And I'm super excited about that. I was just thinking that I'll I'll take that with me to the next convention, you know, if I go and uh, then hopefully get it signed by Julie and Shauna Benson. Okay, well, let's get this thing started. And the reason why I'm doing Background the Birds of Prey first, if there's any question and people analyze the structure of my podcast, it is Rebirth. And so I figure, like, this is probably good to do. It's setting up, whereas Background sort of already dives in. So Background the Birds of Prey, Rebirth number one. Writers Julie Benson and Shauna Benson, artist Claire Rowe, and colorist Alan Pasalacqua. Please note, remember that Background the Birds of Prey takes place after Babs returns from Japan in the pages of Batgirl, so just remember about that. Babs narrates about the past and healing wounds and moving forward. As Batgirl, she takes down several crooks who happen to be on the roof of the Bank of Gotham. All the while, someone is watching her using people's cell phones and security cameras, you know, CCTV and all that jazz. She uses the last crook to unlock his phone and figure out what they are up to and who sent them and everything. When she sees the last message came from Oracle, Babs is, of course, confused and disturbed. Babs then takes a trip down memory lane, explaining that she got into the superhero business because of her father. When her father was too protective and kept her from becoming an officer, she turned to Batman for inspiration. She wanted to make Batman and Robin both proud and became a part of the Batman family. Later, we flash to the night of the killing joke, now showing her hot cocoa filled with marshmallows, which is why she cannot eat marshmallows anymore. She fell into deep despair following this event, especially when she realized she could no longer help people. But then she realized there was another way. She could adapt, gather information, and share it as Oracle. She recruited Dinah to be her brawn, and they later formed the Birds of Prey. 
Sometime later, Babs regained her legs, and Dinah became a singer in the band Black Canary. In the present, Babs goes to find Dinah and tells her someone is using the moniker Oracle. At the clock tower, Babs shows her her research, which looks like a scene out of Homeland, if you know that show. Frankie is briefly suspected, but Babs says she already checked it out. Dinah and Babs decide to go to the guy who brokered the information deal between his men and Oracle, and it's his name is Louis Taroni, who has ties with the mob. Babs wants the birds of prey back together, but Dinah says it will be for one night only. Elsewhere, Helena sits in confession, talking about her past as matron of Spiral, but now she hunts down mafia hitmen, taking care of their families the way they took care of hers. She leaves the confession booth, leaving the priest dead with an arrow to the heart, and looking at the next name on her list, which happens to be Louis Taroni. Batgirl and Black Canary stake out Taroni's location, then drop down to take down some of his thugs and grab him for questioning, but Huntress arrives with the intent to kill him. So there's then a scuffle, and Huntress reveals she knows both of the birds' identities. We then cut to foe Oracle, who knows everything they know, but she, or he, is the only one who knows what's coming. Next, the hunt for Oracle turns deadly. Let me start with an overall for this particular issue. And it's something that I stated on uh, the Batman universe. And it always happens that I say something over there and it's super eloquent. And then I come over here and I can't really remember what I said. And so it's, you know, it's a, it's a poor copy or imitation of it. But when you think about rebirth and when I've been thinking about it, I, you know, it's, it's been a question mark as to what it really means. People know if you listen to the comic cast over at the Batman universe that I'm a little distrustful. I'm dubious about you know, how they're going to handle everything and, and, you know, is it a band-aid or or what is going on? But when I think about it, I think that the perfect idea of rebirth uh, in, if it, if they actually do this, is that it's bridging this universe that we've been with for three plus years, you know, New 52, as well as the pre-Flashpoint universe that everyone wanted to go back to when the new 52 began. So there are clearly some stories, some books that are not bridging. They are going on from the new 52, wherever that began, wherever it went, they're, they're going on. Okay. So the past isn't necessarily going to have any sort of impact on the storytelling the good ones, however, there's a bridge, right? So, for instance, Detective Comics, I think we saw a wonderful moment at the end of issue number one where Batman has conversation with Tim Drake. And you can clearly tell that there's some New 52 elements in there, but then there's also sort of this past era of who Tim Drake was and, and his character and what he stood for and his relationship with Batman. So going into this, I'm wondering, you know, what is Bird's background, the Birds of Prey going to be like? And let me tell you, this is exactly what I hoped for, for Rebirth. It is very clear that the Benson sisters care about the history, not only of the Birds of Prey, but I think Barbara Gordon in general. Uh, I think just dropping the word Oracle, you know, your ears are pricked. You're, you're wondering, oh my goodness, what does that mean? Because that's a heavy word to use, and they're doing it so well, or they did it so well in this particular issue. And I, I think they're faithful to the past, but moving forward 
with what is given because obviously Helena is the new 52 Helena, but you have shades of the relationship between Barbara Gordon and uh, Dinah Lance that was, you know, pre-Flashpoint. So it's just a, a beautiful marriage of uh, these two continuities, I think, that, that really go through and uh, create this first issue. So I just want to say, you know, overall, I'm very pleased. And if this is the way that all Rebirth titles would look, then, you know, I wouldn't be as dubious. But that's not necessarily, you know, what's going to happen. But at least, you know, let me focus on Batgirl and the Birds of Prey Rebirth number one. So first of all, with the cover, uh, it just sort of cracks me up that, you know, Babs and Helena are in this locked stare and, and Dinah is... <laughs> rolling her eyes so it's difficult if I'm to talk about the art now it's difficult to go from Babs Tar whenever you know you see Batgirl you want it to be Babs Tar and I actually enjoy this art but I mean just starting off it's like a darker you know darker color palette um, and obviously it is night but even so with with Babs I think there is sort of a, a lightness to it but you, so you you would kind of be concerned with that. But what I love is that, you know, the first time you see Batgirl, she's smiling. And I think this was one of the problems that was plaguing the Gail Simone run is that, like, she she would not smile either a straight face or a grimace. So I am loving that. And I love the just the emotion that goes into the fact that she finds out about Oracle, uh, how her face drops, and then she loses it for a moment. Like, tell me, you know, tell me who this is, uh, which I think is is totally in character. And then we have this flashback, which is what I want to spend some time on. First of all, and this is something that I talked to the, the Benson sisters about, I love, love, love the fact that we're getting back to... Barbara Gordon wanting to emulate her father first and foremost. I hated the post-crisis reboot or retour, whatever it is, that she saw Batman, she kind of got a crush on him, wanted to be like him. That, you know, that's totally not it. Whatever the writers say, that's not it. I mean, growing up with such a strong father figure or uncle figure, depending on, you know, what continuity we're in, and him being such a respectable man in law enforcement, and so loving, and those two having such a great relationship, there's no way that she would not do something because of him, and so this, I mean, this goes back, you know, to the original, the the 60s and everything, so just the fact that she took on the guys of Batgirl, or at least had the mind to help people because of him, is like, yes, thank you so much, and I talked to them about that, I said, thank you, for doing that because that's how it should be and then you know the the back the her being told you can't do this which is so uh reminiscent of macro year one i thought was great and then turning to batman for inspiration i like that and and the fact that again no crush or anything and seeing her struggle and seeing her with with batman and robin is great i was sort of trying to think about uh the timeline here and this is something that I this is not really my forte. It's more like Dustin's um, to figure out or, or other people. But clearly the timeline, I think, is stretched when you're adding in the Oracle factor. And so I'm wondering if, because she's still, she makes a comment to Black Canary later on in the issue that she's too young to have learned to drive a stick. And Dinah's like, oh, that's mean, but it's true. So, you know, Dinah's older than her. So we're keeping her the same age that she was, I think, with the back roll. But you know, was she a teen? Is she sort of the same age as Dick Grayson when she takes up? That's sort of something that I wonder about. You know, I wonder what the Benson sisters 
intent was with the marshmallows and I'm always, I mean it's a funny detail right funny as in strange or, or queer part of me wonders if maybe they wanted to like lighten this intense moment that's about to happen you know um because she's got a goofy look on her face and everything and then of course you know it is serious that she doesn't eat those anymore again you know I always complain when I have to see the killing joke but I I think it's it may be necessary in this case at least with you know part of these because you wonder how she became disabled to begin with uh and then we have like the moodiest panel ever where she's sitting in her wheelchair thank you for not having handles on the back of that looking out there's a crow there it's it's raining in the window her hood is up it's it's like bella swan in new moon where she spends six months sitting in a chair looking out the window and there's a song going on so moody and it's like yeah that's totally how she was though like she hated herself she was very down like you can totally see these sorts of moments um in birds of prey and you know in the beginning when she felt like she wasn't capable of doing anything but then finally realizing that hey i can do something and it's interesting that she says she hasn't talked to batman about it that she thought maybe she should, you know, keep it to herself. And it jives a little bit with continuity just because he doesn't know right away. Like, you know, she is a mysterious entity on the internet at first, and no one knows until there's that interaction at um, at Bell Rev. And I also like the fact that um, there's one panel that says, or one box that says, Gotham isn't easy on anyone, and it's especially not built with the disabled in mind, which is something that, as I've gone through her history as Oracle in the very beginning, you can see, right, she was in that apartment building one time, the elevator was shut down, she couldn't go out and get groceries. So I love, you know, she builds up everything. I do wonder where she is. I assume she's just in her apartment, right? Because later on, we find out that she just bought the clock tower which is an interesting little change with continuity and she bought it from her money of uh gordon queen energy so that's a new change just that she didn't have it already but it's new but just to go back to that that really dark and depressing panel then it's mirrored in the end with the crow flying away she's not in her wheelchair the sun is is coming up uh, there's a sunrise, and uh, I just think that's a nice little beautiful mirroring of, of when she leaves. Uh, we meet Dinah, of course, and how she plays a part. And I like the fact that she's not, uh, she doesn't really want to do, she's got her own stuff, basically. And this is, I think, how Dinah is. Anyways, that's how they, they first met. She was having her own stuff. and uh, But Oracle, I mean, what a great friend. She just mentions Oracle, and she's like, okay, let me, let's do it. But then she still needs some convincing and I think part of this may be you know with the Birds of Prey run of New 52 that that was a very soured experience obviously and she didn't want that to happen again so I think that it it makes sense that she doesn't (laughs) she doesn't want to get that the the band back together uh but you know just the one night only and then we cut to helena and i think what a perfect entrance for her if you haven't been reading grayson then you may have no idea what she's talking about with matron and spiral and the the hypnos that she's talking about but you know to have her in confession uh in a booth in a catholic church and everything and her talk about it and then you know her put on her mask her her new identity and then leave and that guy is dead and we'll get at a hit list even though she doesn't know the other two birds, I think this is a perfect entrance for her as Huntress. So I think spot on for that. 
And then uh, just fun quipping between the two. I think that's spot on. Like the character voices are just really on point, which I think is wonderful. Uh, and then there's, of course, the scuffle and the shock that uh, Huntress knows both of their identities, which on the side of Huntress isn't too shocking because she does know all these superheroes and everything because she was matron of Spiral. But you're wondering how it's all going to go down with these three working together and what is working together, you know, really going to look like with them. But then we get to the main threat, right? And I do want to take a little bit of a look closely at at who this could be. Because she's watching, she can be tapped into everything. So, someone with tech know-how, let's get just get that out of the way. She has on her desk, if you look, a little kitty on a stand. It could be an anime figure. It could be like a, a knockoff of a, of a Pokemon. And then next to it is a lighter. So she could potentially, or he, could potentially be a smoker. And then uh, there's a box of Pocky. And Pocky is a a Japanese snack food that's basically a chocolate-coated biscuit stick. Or or several of them, anyways. It's hard to see anything else because there's that panel that's covering up. So... This is fun, isn't it? Because if you remember several, like a year ago when I was for, I was pretending to not know that Oracle was Barbara Gordon, I was analyzing everything on her desk. So here we are again. If I were to get, I guess, stereotypical, I would almost think that this person was uh, Asian and perhaps Japanese. Now, the reason I say that is, you know, the Pocky and, and all that jazz and, you know, the cat that could be like a an anime character or a Pokemon, but also because if it's at all tied to the fact that, in name only, Barbara Gordon had been going around Asia and learning different things, perhaps she picks up some sort of enemy there. I don't know. I also think it would be more, now even if it's not someone from Japan, I think it would be super interesting if it were someone that is from Barbara Gordon's past and someone that we as readers know because I think that makes the punch the emotional punch harder to bear right if it's someone that you you don't know I jokingly said I think to Josh and Don joking slash half serious what if it was Wendy you know from the uh, Stephanie Brown Batgirl world and it's interesting, there was something I didn't necessarily agree in, with because, you know, with Barbara's conspiracy wall or, you know, however you would call it, uh, Dinah says, you know, your girl Frankie's the only one I know smart enough to have done this. And Bab says, smart enough, yes, but not evil enough. Besides, I traced her IP, no sign of Oracle code on her system. So it's not like she even trusts her. Like the first sentence is, I trust her. Like, yeah, she could do this, but she's not. But in any case, I did check up on her. And that's a bit of a hurting line to say that you don't even trust Frankie enough. Uh, But it's also a very Batman thing to do because Batman may trust you, kind of. But he's also going to have a way to take you out if he needs to. And, you know, I have been talking about Frankie and being connected and that being just a bad idea. But it looks like the person is... Or has a whiter skin tone. So I don't think it can be Frankie. I do think it's probably a female. Though it'd be interesting if Calculator does make his appearance here. But yeah, I guess was I, I just think a female, someone that we know. And someone that Babs has met or um, is going to meet in, in Batgirl. 
But I could also be very wrong about that because when I asked Hope Larson if she was talking to the Benson sisters, she said, no, not as of yet. They haven't really sat down. So it seems like maybe those two books are are separate. But I, I think maybe someone who enjoys Japanese culture and is a female and knows Barbara Gordon and we know her, that's going to be my my guest there. And I think that's all I have to say about it. I mean, I could go like page by page, which I was kind of doing as I was flipping through, but I just think it's a wonderful issue. Um, I'm very pleased with the Benson sisters. I think that they paid the due amount of respect that needed to be paid to Barbara Gordon's history, to Oracle especially, and bringing that back in and making it worthwhile that this book is bridging the gap, like I said, between these two continuities. And, you know, I didn't get to talk with them, unfortunately, but at the Birds of Prey 20th anniversary panel, they were saying how their father, like, gave them, you know, long boxes of stuff, and they were reading this. So I have no concern whatsoever about them understanding who Barbara Gordon as a character is and her rich history. So I'm fully on board with this. I think I'm going to give it... I just feel like giving it a 10 out of 10. I'm sorry. I think, you know, I can't really think of anything that I uh, I necessarily disagree with. So I'm going to give it 10 out of 10 birds. Now on to my next book and my last book, Batgirl number 1, Beyond Burnside, part 1. Writer Hope Larson, artist Raphael Albuquerque, and colorist Dave McKegg. In Naha, Okinawa, Japan, a Japanese woman in a school uniform is attacking people and asking for a formula when Batgirl suddenly arrives. 24 hours earlier, Babs is walking the streets of Japan calling Gordon Clean Energy to check up on everything. Frankie tells her to let them handle it just as Babs arrives at a hostel known as Drum House. Upon entering her room, Babs quickly meets her roommate Kai, who happens to be an old friend. Babs tells him that she is going all over Asia, but is here to meet Fruit Bat, a.k.a. Chiyo Yamashiro, a hero from the 40s who fought crime and still lives in Naha at the age of 104. Kai and Babs were friends when they both lived in Chicago. Kai has a rough past, but he is traveling to get some perspective and will end his trip in China, where his grandparents are from. They go out to eat, octopus, and then go drinking. Kai gets sick back at the hostel. The next day at Sion Square, during the 10,000 Isa dance parade, Babs meets the fruit bat. She naps while her son makes rude comments about her age. Babs hears screaming, and we are back where the issue began, and Kai is the one being attacked while the assailant demands the formula. She goes to escape, and Batgirl uses her intellect and some geometry to attack her with a ball, when Fruit Bat suddenly appears and stops the assailant and blocks a blade from striking. The girl runs off and Batgirl asks for some teaching and Fruit Bat says that she cannot see the future when the past is standing in her way and that she must find the teacher. Batgirl thinks back on the altercation and comes upon an advertisement for an ADAPT multi-martial arts open weight Grand Prix in Singapore. Back at the hostel, Kai tells Babs that Batgirl appeared and that he thinks it is because she is the guardian angel of Babs. Babs thinks that it's no coincidence that Kai is there and she invites him to go with her to Singapore. Next, Batgirl throws down. Okay, so let me first point out the obvious to you. This is not Batgirl Rebirth number one. This is Batgirl number one. And that, I think, should already tell you potentially something. This is what I was talking about earlier. If you are expecting a bridge between 
pre-Flashpoint and New 52, this is not that book. So again, the Rebirth title doesn't make sense for this. It's just, this is Batgirl number 53, if you really want to think about it. It's going from Burnside, I mean, it's called Beyond Burnside, and it's just moving forward with with all of that. So let me first say that I enjoyed the issue. I I, I think it has a good tone to it, uh, obviously, like, you know, there's some fighting, which I think needs to happen, but uh, Barbara is uh, fun and optimistic, and her interactions with people are great. You know, the fact that she wants to meet a hero that she looks up to, that has outlived most heroes, because she says the the life expectancy rate for a superhero is 40, I think is great and spot on. And, and uh, it's fun to see Barbara Gordon backpacking, you know, and, and learning more, kind of being on a, a quest for her to discover herself, I guess. Or, you know, a more fun Batman training trip, probably. And I like the art. I, I think that Raphael Albuquerque takes what Babs Tar had and uh moves forward with his own style um and obviously you've got the the japanese cultural element in it as well so i just want to say that you know i i liked it i I think that it moved well in you know pace wise it's there are some moments where she's looking back and there's some connections there obviously you see jim she makes that call to frankie but you're also clearly so there's some wrap-up, you know, but she's moving forward. Um, and now we have this this friend, which I guess we will get into. So there's always going to be a tie of the past, if you think about it, how long this Kai guy is going to be around. And then, you know, a, a fight scene, and she's using her using her smarts and then being sort of a fangirl with Fruit Bat. So, I, you know, I think uh, for the most part, it, it seems to get Batgirl right. Now, let me tell you my disappointments in this particular issue. When I interviewed uh, Hope Larson, which I'm sure you've heard, it was, well, the previous episode this month, I asked her, right, what what ties to or nods to the past are you going to be making as you move on to the future? And she said, you know, I don't know about nods to the past, right? I'm just going to take what the Burnside Run had done and move forward. Now, I ask you, friends, listeners... If someone said that about Batman or Superman or Flash or Wonder Woman, would you not be a little concerned, right? Like, just, we're moving on, you know, we're not going to mention any of the, the stuff that uh, that Batman's gone through and, and all of that. It doesn't really. Barbara Gordon has just as rich a character history as any of those people. And, you know, perhaps even more, she was, you know, a librarian to congresswoman to human research and, the you know, the humanities research and development. And, you know, Bruce Wayne has mostly, you know, been a playboy there and then Batman. So she's, like, done way more. And there's not going to be any nods to the past. So I'm a little disappointed by this. So if I look to the two nods to the past, one of them was she was talking to Fruit Bat, who was sleeping at this time, and she says, you know, I used to be in a wheelchair too. And we have lots of other things in common. And that's, you know, the only bubble, basically, of her stint as Oracle or or being paralyzed or anything, not that it was life-changing or shaping in any way. 
I just have concerns about that. I understand that we're trying to move forward and she's trying to quote unquote find herself. But, you know, someone who is trying to find themselves, well, I guess I don't even necessarily agree that Barbara Gordon needs to with all of the, it's like the third time that she's had to. I guess what also concerns me is the fact that Fruit Bat tells her that you've got to let go of the past in order to move on. And that it's just like another way of saying that we're not going to to get any connection or I, I don't resolution with stuff that had gone on. Uh, the other thing that concerns me is continuity. And I mean, I will ask certain questions, um, but I don't get like too deep into continuity. Because I don't, I mean, I don't want to talk about stuff that I don't have a full grasp on. But I, I feel like I do have a pretty full grasp on Batgirl continuity and Barbara Gordon specifically. And all of a sudden, we have Barbara Gordon at about the age of 10-ish, around 10, living in Chicago with her father. So... What timeline are we even on right now? So if this is, I mean, she could be that age if Thelma and Roger are her parents and she's about to leave Chicago because they're both dead and she's gone. Jim Gordon, who did live in Chicago, came down at least, I would think, before he had any kids. But if he had any, then he... They wouldn't be this old. Barbara would not be this old. Uh, James, I guess, could have just been born. I don't know. And there is that, of course, thing where Barbara Senior Senior took the kids and went back to Chicago, right? I think it was after the Sarah Essen affair. But that doesn't make sense for why he is there. So the whole thing is like, why in the world is Jim Gordon in Chicago when Barbara is 10? Like he should already be in Gotham. She should already be in Gotham. So I'm a little confused as to what timeline this is and the history. Do you see my concern there? Um, and this is if you're if you're looking at it, I think it's like page eight at the bottom, right? And you were always getting us in trouble. Remember those lectures my dad gave us back in Chicago? And Jim says, cops, kids, and up as cops or criminals which are you going to be think about it so that seems a little faulty just uh saying about that i do wonder when barbara gordon learned japanese i, I guess she could have learned it i i don't remember a story point of her learning it maybe she i mean she does have an i memory and perhaps she was learning it when she decided she needed to leave but I mean she is like fully immersed and uh totally knows I mean she even knows uh vernacular like dude so she seems to know what's going on as for Barbara Gordon turning into Batgirl I don't know how many of you will agree with me but I feel like if I want Barbara Gordon to discover herself, I'd like her to stay Barbara Gordon. I understand that Barbara Gordon is Batgirl and you're probably just, you want to read a Batgirl book. But how much can you discover yourself if you are like darting into alleys and becoming the superhero, right? I kind of wish that it'd be sort of a um, post-infinite crisis, you know, Batman and his, his people and going to train or like you know finding them but they're still themselves right i kind of wish she would but you know what does that involve her being 
Peter Parker in Spider-Man 2, um, where he watches the guy get mugged in the alley as he eats his hot dog. Yeah, I, I understand that. But I, I just kind of wonder, like, you know, how fleshed out is this discovering herself going to be? Because it is fun to see her, you know, walking with her backpack. I can totally see that. Uh, the other problem I have with this particular issue is the fact that Kai bursts in and says, Batgirl was there. I think it's because of you. And then says, because she's your guardian angel. Please, you, you two people in the same place at the same time, can't you stretch with the imagination that she and Batgirl are one and the same? I wish. I wish. Regarding the story and the formula and all of that jazz, I'm surprised we're not staying in, like, this really is going to be a globe-trotting, I guess. I mean, she's going to Singapore all of a sudden. And I kind of want it to be resolved with whatever this is, with the bad guy whomever she is, to be resolved in Japan before moving on to a new place. So I'm not sure about that. Uh, And I do, yeah, it's a pretty big coincidence with this Kai character, obviously. And I wonder how long he's going to be sticking around, or is she, you know, in the next arc, is she going to find uh, a new character? And I also wonder, because I was very wrong, and I thought that Katana was in the story, I also wonder how how interesting it would have been to have Katana in this particular story. And... You know, the interactions, because there's history there, obviously, and I think there could have been, like, some training montage, certainly, between the two of them. They didn't have the best breakup, obviously. You know, she left the the birds of prey, so, you know, some resolution there, but, eh, I don't know. And speaking of that, does it bother anyone else that there are no Batman family members at all in this? And I'm not talking back flash or, or, you know, flashbacks or any of that jazz. This is a completely self-contained book that's going to have nothing to do with the rest of the Batman universe. It's like Wolverine in Japan, basically, you know, but even so, Kitty Pride popped over there at one point. So that's my goodness, you know, is she out of the family now? This is like Barbara Gordon is becoming Batwoman when Bat. Batwoman started off in the New 52 and she wasn't really a member. Batman didn't trust her, all that stuff. And that's not how the character should be portrayed. So, you know, I did enjoy it um, with all of my complaints. I did enjoy this. I did think that it was good. But you, I'm afraid you're either going to be um, a casual, if you're a casual Barbara Gordon reader, you will enjoy this. If you are someone like me, you are going to be slightly frustrated and a little saddened by the fact that the past, in terms of continuity, is pretty much dead here. And uh, you've kind of got to, I guess, get over yourself and move on, like I guess I will have to do. But I will be there every step of the way to point out little strange nuances that maybe do not belong in this. If you can answer me about Jim Gordon in Chicago with a 10-year-old daughter, please let me know because he should be in Gotham City at that point in time. And I think that is where I'm going to leave it. Uh, after all of that, I think I will uh, I will give it a... Hmm. Now I'm going to take on the casual reader. The casual reader... I will give the casual reader a 9 out of 10 bats, and I will give the anal retentive uh, back roll reader, which is me, I would probably give it a, um, probably, uh, I guess an 8. I'd drop it down a little bit for sure. 
this is not rebirth is all I have to say. So you should probably wipe out the top. It's just back roll number 53. Maybe I'll go on and, and call them that for right now. Um, so yeah, there we go. And, and here's hoping that it continues. You know, like I said, it's good and enjoyable. But this is not rebirth or what I was expecting or what we were told rebirth was. So there you go. Now over to Chris for his Batman 66 review. Ah, that's like a box of cereal with half a bowl left. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. Thank you for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast forwarding. I'm Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you today. So, how's everyone's summer going? Are some of you out there in pre- or post-Comic-Con mode? Have you had any interesting experiences? Have you taken any vacation? Me, I'm still adjusting to life without a gallbladder. My mind is going one way and my body's going another. Locally, I've seen some new people getting into comics. Daughters and mothers, sons and fathers, and I think that's great. So I've had some ups and downs so far this season. At any rate, I wish you well and I hope you're having a great season wherever in this world that you are. Today, I'll examine Batman 66 meets Steed and Mrs. Peel number one, which unfortunately does not include any appearance of Barbara Gordon or Batgirl. Issue number one was cover dated September 2016 and is a DC Comics Boom Studios crossover, with their characters based on the British TV series The Avengers. A great cover art, which alludes to a 30-second intro of The Avengers TV show for U.S. audiences, referred to as the Chessboard U.S. intro, and you can find it on YouTube, was provided by Michael and Laura Allred. The contents were originally recent download format, and there is also a nice variant cover by Babstar. Chapter 1 is entitled The Bowler and the Bat, and was written by Ian Edgington and are provided by Matthew Dow-Smith. Our story opens at a rare gemstone exhibition, and a tuxedo-clad Bruce Wayne is escorting visiting Brit Michaela Goff, who's wearing a mod bitty dress with go-go boots, and she's also the head of United Automation, a company that Wayne Enterprises will shortly do business with. As they approach the White Star Diamond, Catwoman and three henchmen enter, smashing cases and starting to loot what they can. Bruce activates a signal on his watch and transmits an audio back to the Batcave, where Robin and Alfred are cleaning up some bat guano, which I can't immediately recall when this was last addressed in the comics, and I don't think ever was addressed in the TV series. Listening in, they hear that Batman is being confronted by the Catwoman. Alfred then dresses as Batman, and he and Robin will make their way to the exhibition. Catwoman and her henchmen, though, are suddenly confronted by someone else in a cat suit, Mrs. Emma Peel, who takes out the Catwoman and the henchmen, and John Steed trips up the Catwoman with his umbrella. Michaela faints from the excitement. Robin and Alfred, now dressed as Batman, arrive and the villains are then escorted outside, while a silver figure wearing a dark hat, glasses, and a trench coat, Cybernaut, watches from an alley across the street. Chapter 2. The Robin and the Cat. At Gotham City Police Headquarters, Bruce is now dressed as Batman. Commissioner Gordon formally introduces the dynamic duo to British secret intelligent agents John Steed and Emma Peel. Batman realizes that the White Star Diamond was a replica, and Steed explains that the real one is in the Tower of London, and that gems of high clarity have been stolen throughout the UK. Planning bait in Gotham City could flush out the culprit, but Steed is seemingly unaware that his gold pen in his breast suit pocket is transmitting the conversation to a woman in an unknown location, who I suspect is Michaela. Batman and Robin suggest they interrogate the Catwoman. However, word of this gets back to the unknown woman, who then activates three Cybernauts to go after her. The Cybernauts break into the Catwoman's cell from the outside, and they prepare to attack, just as our four heroes arrive, and Emma and Steed recognizing, but shocked to see, the Cybernauts. To be continued. 
I love Batman 66, and I love the Avengers, or Steed and Mrs. Peel, if you will. Of course, the rights to the name of the Avengers are owned by Marvel Comics. When this six-issue miniseries was first announced, I was really looking forward to it, and I wondered if this project would ever happen, what with the recent events of DC Comics this past year. Finally, the first issue came out, and I was mostly disappointed. But granted, it's early, and this is only the first issue. British comic book writer Ian Edgington has written for Steed and Emma Peel for Boom. He's also written X-Force for Marvel, among other titles, and he's a multi-nominated Eisner writer. Now, I've read him interviewed, and he seems to have a grasp of all the characters and to be an excellent choice to write this series. All of the characters are in proper voice, though I just thought the pacing and storytelling moved very slowly. The issue had two chapters, and each one had only one main setting, the exhibition in Chapter 1 and Gotham City Police Headquarters in Chapter 2. On the Batman TV series, for the most part, Gotham City Police Headquarters mostly was seen in the opening and closing acts, a place to get a lead, or a place to have an epilogue. This location shouldn't have this many pages devoted to it taking up dialogue. Typical episodes of both TV series seem to be shot in multiple occasions to move the story along. But using two main spots here in one issue, for me, just seemed to drag the narrative down. I did like the mention of United Automations from where the Cybernauts were created, a fact that Steed should have known instantly when it was mentioned, but he couldn't place it. There was also mention of taking Steed and Mrs. Peel to the Batcave and blindfolding them beforehand, breaking the standard protocol of administering a whiff of bat sleep, which I thought was a bit unusual. I don't know where we are continuity-wise, as Robin was able to drive the Batmobile by Season 3 on the TV series, but here he didn't go to the exhibition alone. Now I think I've crossed the threshold of nitpicks that just don't really matter. I had some pros and cons with the art as well. Matthew Dow Smith can draw a Julie Newmark Catwoman like no one else. The facial expressions are spot on, and it's just outstanding. There's one panel where a Catwoman is sitting in her cell saying bored numerous times. <laughs> and boy, can I relate after reading this issue. That really captured the right voice and mood of the Catwoman. As with Catwoman, the depiction of Diana Riggs' Emma Peel was excellent as well, from her hair, her eyes, her cheeks, her lips, visually very stunning. Now, while all that was great, most of the other artwork had the characters that just seemed stiff and still as if they were statues with just no fluidity. The fight scene, what there was, seemed to be restricted by the tight panel layout. (sighs) I was really torn with this book. There were things to like here, such as the name Michaela Goff which was likely a nod to actor Michael Goff, who played Alfred in four Batman movies. But did you know he also played Dr. Clement Armstrong, who created the Cybernauts in the Avengers episode aptly titled The Cybernauts? Ultimately, I thought it just moved a bit too slow for an opening chapter. I feel a bit guilty saying that as my local comic book store awarded this title of the week, and they gave it some premium extra space on the cash register counter, perhaps for an impulse buy for someone. I have no doubt that this creative team is talented, and I am optimistic that it will get much better as subsequent issues come out. But for now, I'm giving Batman 66, Meet Steed, and Mrs. Peel just 4 out of 10 bats. Over on the TBU website, Jerry Green was a bit more generous, and he gave this 2.5 out of 5. The original Avengers TV series incarnation ran from 1961 to 1969. Patrick McNee played John Steed throughout the series' run. I think it's fair to say that the series hit its stride and favorited episodes came with the introduction of Diana Rigg as Mrs. Emma Peel in Season 4, which was in black and white, and Season 5, which was in color, which were then exported abroad and still has a fairly strong fan following, in my opinion. Linda Thorson played Steed's partner Tara King in the final season when Rigg left the series. In future review segments, I'll examine the Avengers TV series and its other incarnations. It's not to pop culture and other TV shows in the mid-1960s. Other DC Comics appearances and nods to the Steed and Emma Peel characters, 
the connection of one of the cast members to the Game of Thrones. And I'll ask myself, just how bad was the 1998 feature film based on the show? Now, as promised, it's time for the occasionally mentioned, sometimes forgotten, examination of the Barbara Gordon Batgirl appearances in the comic strips titled Batman with Robin the Boy Wonder, which came out in the mid-1960s. What I love about Sella's podcast is that she examines all the incarnations of the Barbara Gordon Batgirl, including those from the 60s TV show and the Filmation cartoons. So I thought it fitting that these appearances should at least be examined. In 2014, comics publisher IDW released the first reprint volume of these strips, covering the years 1966 and 1967, which would be the third time Batman would appear in the comic strips, after stints in the 40s and once again in 1953. Later, a fourth vision ran from 1989 to 1991, with the creative talents of Max Collins, Marshall Rogers, William Esner Loves, and Carmine Infantino. This particular book's introduction was written by Batman expert, Ultimate Fan, and collector Joe DeSears, who states that while the strip was credited to Bob Kane, it was actually written by Whitney Ellsworth and drawn at first by Sheldon Moldoff, Carmine Infantino, and later Joe Giella. Before the story sequence that introduced Batgirl, their creative team had Batman and Robin busy with many adventures featuring old and new villains alike, and also just as many head-scratching moments that I'll call WTH moments throughout the rest of the segment. The Penguin, the Catwoman, and a baddie called Little Napoleon, along with a 22-year-old Josephine, appeared in sequence first. Now, the next story sequence with the Joker offers several WTH moments throughout, not including a Superman appearance. One, the Joker is being paroled. Two, Bruce Wayne gives the Joker a job as the Wayne Manor butler when Alfred breaks his leg. And three, the Joker having a mall named Laughing Girl who's dressed in native Indian garb and occasionally spouts some very non-PC comments by today's standards, who's really Bertha Schultz from Brooklyn. Batman and Robin also meet Batchap and Bobbin, an ersatz British version of our heroes. The Penguin is next, followed by the Jolly Roger, a pirate-themed villain who has our heroes walk the plank. Poison Ivy appears next in a long sequence that features Conrad Hilton in a bat-shaped hotel complete with female Robins that are on the staff. Ivy's henchwomen are also there, and they are all Ivy League school dropouts. Jack Benny is in the next sequence, and he's enlisted our heroes to find a stolen violin taken by a villain called the Collector, not to be confused with the Marvel Comics version of the character. Finally, we come to the last panel of the Sunday strip dated April 30th, 1967, for Batgirl's historic first comic strip appearance. This comes a few months after her first comic book appearance, which was November 29th, 1966, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The story starts out with our heroes being summoned to Gotham City Police Headquarters and an angry Commissioner Gordon demanding to know why Batman didn't tell him he had a sister, namely Batgirl. Our heroes have no idea who she is, but they see a snapshot of her. And this snapshot looks like the way she was depicted on the cover of Detective Comics 359, which was her first comic book appearance. The good news is Batgirl thwarted four holdups and she left the crooks for the police. The bad news is she has yet to return the collective loot of $163,737. In our next WTH moment, Batman and Robin decide to have Bruce and Dick dress as bank robbers, complete with black domino masks, so they have a chance to catch Batgirl in the hopes of flushing her out. The bank they choose to rob is already being (laughs) robbed in progress, so they have to change back to Batman and Robin to chase them away and let them get away before they can dress up as bank robbers again. Bruce deliberately trips a bank alarm, shocking himself in the process. Barbara Gordon does hear the alert, and she was listening in on the police band radio in her dad's car. Changing to Batgirl, she confronts the robbers and displays her fighting prowess, 
ultimately leaving Bruce and Dick stuck in an alley she sprayed with rubber cement and leaving them for the police. Beckerel then returns to Gotham City Library, where there she has a hidden room as her base of operations. Then she is met by Jose Guy, a custodian of the library, who appears to look like a sumo wrestler, and he also inexplicably already knows her identity. There, it's explained that Batgirl has kept the money so she can meet and presumably turn it over to Batman himself. At police headquarters, Bruce and Dick are released after explaining they were on their way to a costume party. They also overhear Commissioner Gordon say that his daughter was using his car. Batman and Robin then suspect Batgirl might be Barbara Gordon. So they stop Barbara Gordon's car, but they don't find any money. They then go to the library, where they are met by Hosei Gay, and they have a meaningless fight, which ends in a draw with Batman commenting that he seemed to be a nice chap. The next day, Alfred alerts Bruce and Dick to a newspaper personal ad, which reads BMW12MHIW7B, delimiter, delimiter, or dollar sign, dollar sign, BG, which obviously translates to Batman to meet Batgirl atop the West Tower of the Gotham Bridge at midnight. Alas, the Riddler also spies the ad and he deciphers it. He then plans to intercept Batgirl and her money. Batgirl arrives at the designated bridge tower only to be confronted by the Riddler and his henchmen. A fight ensues. The dynamic duo eventually arrive by Batcopter, and after a lengthy sequence and some illogic, the villains are caught, and Batgirl returns the money but jumps off the bridge deliberately, leaving her fate unknown at the moment. This leads to the next sequence. After leaving police headquarters by Batcopter, a propeller plane is flown by a villain known as Blue Max Baron which I should provide some side explanation, a reference to the then-current movie which starred George Pappard, and the Blue Max refers to a metal. He's also literally drawn as having powder blue skin, and that's explained by him being constantly cold. Anywho, Blue Max flies straight at the Batcopter. The Batcopter goes down after an evasive maneuver, but it hits some tension lines and it crashes. A stunned Robin pulls out an unconscious Batman before the copter explodes. The Blue Max notifies an underworld accountant named BG Trouble that he now can collect a standing $1 million reward for Batman's demise. A farmer arrives at police headquarters and informs Commissioner Gordon that the Batcopter crashed on his land and that there is no sign of bodies or debris. Back at the Batcave, Alfred and Robin examine Batman. He eventually revives, but now he has amnesia. News of our hero's demise is made public. Alfred and Robin try to jog Batman's memory by retelling Batman's origin and Robin's origin, but to no avail. Meanwhile, Barbara's nephew Wendell informs her that he knows the area where Batman and Robin live, having seen the Batmobile seemingly drive into a hill while on a scout outing, and these events were depicted in a previous story. Batgirl later later investigates, and she does indeed find the Batcave, but she trips an alarm, causing her to flee. As a failsafe, Robin decides to activate a charge and seal off the Batcave. Batgirl traces the course to higher ground, which leads her to Wayne Manor, where she then wonders if Batman and Robin could be indeed Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. She unlocks a door, and she goes inside. She gets tired, though, and decides to rest and curl up in a large chair, and she instantly falls asleep. Batman and Robin take an elevator up to Wayne Manor, and Batman immediately senses someone's presence. Startled, Batgirl wakes up. She's shocked to find that her heroes are not ghosts. Robin correctly surmises that Batgirl now has discovered their secret identities, and Batman jokingly suggests that they kill her. Let me just say throughout this book, Batman makes a lot of jokes that are just seemingly out of character. Batgirl doesn't think any of this is funny, and she demands that they call the commissioner to inform him that they are both indeed are alive. 
It's been suggested that Batgirl put on a Batman costume and patrol in the Batmobile until Batman recovers from his amnesia. After Batgirl puts on the Batman costume, it appears to be very form-fitting, to which Batman says, I must say, you look better in that outfit than I do. And Robin then shows Batgirl the instruments on the Batmobile. Meanwhile, the Syndicate men go after BG Trouble to get their money back, now that they discover Batman is alive. Trouble then concocts a plot to capture Batman. While on patrol, Batgirl is lured to drive the Batmobile into the back of a semi. Trouble is then shocked to discover that he's captured Batgirl and not Batman. Trouble uses the radio in the Batmobile to contact Batman and Robin and informs him to get the $1 million back or else Batgirl is going to be harmed. Trouble refuses to tell them that he gave it to the Blue Max, as if this is some underworld code of honor. Meanwhile, the Blue Max is now hiding out on a Caribbean island, and he's traded his $1 million for $5 million counterfeit dollars. Batgirl manages to trick the three gunmen using various contrivances on the Batmobile, and eventually she knocks them all out and secures them. Batman then recalls the license number of the plane that took them out. This then tr- leads our heroes to track the Blue Max, and then track his pleasant location. Our heroes confront the Blue Max, but he escapes by plane, leaving his counterfeit money behind. But in his haste, he did not warm up the plane's engine, which causes it to stall and crash in the ocean, seemingly killing him, but readers then see that he was able to swim away with the aid of some scuba gear he stored aboard. Our heroes then track the counterfeiter, now dead of thirst because his giant pet turtle wouldn't let go of his leg when he tried to leave the island, and they also find the original $1 million, which they use in a ruse to capture BG Trouble, and also having Secret Service agents on hand capture Trouble after he takes possession of the counterfeit money. Okay, are you guys still with me? This sequence more or less ends in a strip dated November 10th, 1967, with Batman asking Batgirl if she'll consider self-hypnosis to forget the hero's secret identities. Batgirl says no, but she'll think about it before driving off, and our hero's not bothering to check the license plate of the car she's driving. Okay, Batgirl does not appear for the remainder of the book. She will appear in the next volume, which I'll cover in my next segment. However, Barbara Gordon herself does appear in two more single strips, but just in cameo appearances. There are some obvious differences here between the comic books and the TV show with this comic strip. The biggest of which, I think, is Batgirl discovering Batman and Robin's secret identities. Now, unlike the TV show, Alfred does not know Batgirl's identity. How Jose Guy, or Jose Gay, depending on the pronunciation, comes to establish a relationship with Batgirl isn't exactly clear, but he obviously trained her in some capacity. Batgirl proves herself as intelligent as being an adept detective in her own right, and she more than holds her own in a fight. Now, I don't know what mandates, if any, Whitney Ellsworth had with writing this comic strip. Batman makes some occasional uh, out-of-character comments, some of which may be interpreted as snarky, and I don't know if that's some sense of humor on Whitney Ellsworth's part coming out here. In this volume, the story arcs seem to initially take a lighter tone, but they later evolved to be something more of a serial with more of a serious tone, what with Batman's head injury and the bizarre death of a counterfeiter depicted. If you get a chance, and granted this may not be the Batman for everyone, I think these stories are worth a read, if not for the history, just for the unusual events that took place. If any of you out there listen to uh, listeners out there follow the comic strips that are in the newspapers today, those sequential ones, I mean. Granted, the serialized comic strip isn't carried by local many local newspapers anymore. Popular ones like Little Orphan Annie aren't made to any more to my knowledge, but she did appear years back in the Dick Tracy comic strip, which still does appear in the Chicago Tribune and online on the Go Comics website. The Phantom recently appeared in the current Dick Tracy story arc, which is still in progress at the time of this writing. 
If you like the comics medium, I'd ask you to try to read a comic strip adventure, either online or from a newspaper. And note the art and the storytelling, and the differences to the medium that comic books owe a huge debt to. If you're into Batman, perhaps your local library has a collected volume of Dick Tracy comic strips, which you may like if you don't own a volume already. Again, this may not be for you, but I don't know. Give this a try. Listeners, please feel free to leave any comments for myself or for the podcast on the TB website. And please leave us a good review over on iTunes. Thank you very much. If you wish to contact me directly, I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. Thank you for your support. Will Catwoman survive the attack of the Cybernauts? Will our heroes find out who is controlling the Cybernauts? Will the next chapter have more than two locations? The answer to these short, semi-serious sentences to be answered next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. Now my two literature recommendations, and they are both very different. Actually... There's similar. There's kind of a similarity that's connecting the two of them. Uh, f- the first one was "Please Kill Me: The Uncensored Oral History of Punk" by Legs McNeil and Julian McCain. Though Britain's and this is from Amazon, of course. Though Britain's notorious Sex Pistols shoved punk rock into the face of mainstream America, the movement was already brewing in the U.S. in the 1960s with bands like the Velvet Underground and Iggy and the Stooges. Through hundreds of interviews with forgotten bands, as well as the ones that made names for themselves, including Blondie and the Ramones, Legs McNeil and Julian McCain chronicle punk rock history through the people who really lived it. Please Kill Me is a thrash-down memory lane for those hip to punk's early years and an enlightening history lesson for youngsters interested in the origins of modern alternative music. It was super interesting. I was a little disturbed by all the sex and the drugs. <laughs> Literally, it really is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But it was. It was out of their mouths. You know, it was interview style. There weren't necessarily, there weren't questions asked, but it was just like, you know, they obviously had questions that something was asked or they were answering. And it was out of the mouths of, you know, the people, the the fans, the inner circle, all of this. So it was, it was really interesting. And then I also read recently The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. And again from Amazon, The Bell Jar chronicles the crack up of Esther Greenwood. Brilliant, beautiful, enormously talented and successful, but slowly going under, maybe for the last time. Sylvia Plath masterfully draws the reader into Esther's breakdown with such intensity that Esther's insanity becomes completely real and even rational, as probable and accessible an experience as going to the movies. Such deep penetration into the dark and harrowing corners of the psyche is an extraordinary accomplishment and has made the bell jar a haunting American classic. Um, So I say, you know, it was kind of connected because of like some of the depression and the the drugs and such. Um, but though she tried to overdose, uh, it was very interesting. It's sort of like um, it was like a weird amoeba of story at the beginning because you're just following Esther along, da da da. And then once she gets back, like you're starting to see hints of stuff when she leaves New York and comes back, and then when she's actually home in Boston, you start to uh, really get a hint of what's happening and then sort of her downward spiral and then her recovery. And then, you know, the ending is a bit of ambiguous whether she's fully recovered or not and whether she gets out of the asylum or not. And uh, it is semi or thought to be semi-autobiographical of Sylvia Plath herself, who was uh, bipolar and had suffered from depression, everything like that. But It was uh, an interesting and good read, so I recommend it, of course. Well, that is it for this particular show. You were treated with two 
in the uh, <laughs> in this month, and uh, I think Donovan said something like, "Well, a lot too have re- have you gone by weekly? Because two a month have really been coming out." And I yelled at him. I said, "No, don't say that." I I couldn't handle bi weekly. There are only certain, and I know it's probably happened maybe the past couple months, but it'd be too much, too much, I'd say. So, anyways, uh, remember you can send any questions or comments to backroll.oracle at gmail.com, and you can always post on the actual episode page as well at the batmanuniverse.net like the show on facebook follow it on twitter at backworld oracle follow the batman universe on facebook and twitter as well support tbu and of course bto by going on the batmanuniverse.net and clicking on the support tbu link i think last i checked it was like 41 percent. so we have what 59 percent more to go to finance the server fee and again there are some incentives that dustin's putting out there if you listen to the comic cast like unedited comic cast episodes uh which you would really enjoy since i'm there and and i know what he cuts out but you know if you just every listener just paid a dollar like that'd be amazing just a dollar and and we'd be done we'd be done once again thanks to my high comics for sponsoring backroll the oracle the barbara gordon podcast And next week, we will see how Rebirth continues with both of these titles. And I am going to go back a little bit in time uh, with the vintage stuff uh, just slightly and do a couple Robin issues because I like them and and didn't want to skip over them for Legacy. So that's what you can look forward to. And enjoy the rest of your summer, kids. I'm. (laughs) It's sad that we're, we're getting down to it. But savor your freedom. And until next time. Fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?